still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends And you are our friends And it's our show Ladies and gentlemen <laughs> Welcome to Jim Cornette's drive through Right here on another beautiful spring day Somewhere Maybe not where you live, but somewhere it is beautiful. I'm the great Brian Last, your host, and we have a lot to go over today. We have some games, some songs, we have questions, and maybe even a review. Led by this man, given by this man, answered by this man, all of the above, maybe none of the above, the leader of the cult of Cornette, the former post office ninja, Mr. Jim Cornette. By the time you get here, fire! Fire. Huh, huh. The Ohio players, one of my favorite groups. Oh, I thought you were doing the Pointer Sisters. I wasn't sure what you were doing there. No, no, that was fire instead <laughs> of fire. Huh, huh. What do you think of the Pointer Sisters? <laughs> I don't know. One of them was pointing the wrong way. I remember it was like the Andrews Sisters. <laughs> no, seriously. Now, come on. In the it, remember all our fans that are listening to the podcast now that were big, uh, you know, big band and swing music fans in World War II will will remember that the the Andrews sisters, Patty, Maxine, and Laverne, one of them was cute, one of them was in the middle, and one of them was the unfortunate sister. And I think it was the same. I can't remember. Bonnie was one of the pointers. It was one of the other pointer, Percy Pointer or Paula Pointer. That was Paula Poundstone or Percy Pringle. But I can't but one of <laughs> one of those uh one of those pointers was pointing the wrong way. But anyway, we, we I just I just felt like singing some Ohio players today, this morning on the program. We'll get into a little bit more fire later on today for those of you who have been on Twitter and email and Sending us smoke signals. <laughs> Just realized what you were referring to. <laughs> well, thank you for catching up with uh, me. You're welcome. <laughs> I, almost, I, I submerged past you, lapped around, and almost came up behind you before you got that one. Um, I'm going to reveal something in public here today, Brian, on the program. Something that the people, the cult of Cornette, does not know happened over the last couple of days. Wait, hold, on, hold on, wait a minute here. Well, hold on, where's my gimmick? Ladies and gentlemen, after two and a half years, Jim Cornette has gone out in public. Register your shock and surprise now, Brian Lowe. Well, you knew about it already. 
I clued you in. You sound a little hoarse. Are you feeling all right? Oh, come on now. Don't start. It's weighing upon me. As a matter of fact, for the, ne the next 48 hours, I'm going to be, if you shoved a lump of coal up my ass, you'd come out with a 10-carat diamond. No, I, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I've played the averages on this one. Here's what happened, folks. Uh, Stacy's sister and her husband are, came out from California to to this area of the country. I'm not going to narrow down exactly where I was and where we went because I want the speculation to run rampant. Let the let the speculation begin. The Cornette sightings. I knew that was him at that car wash in Cleveland, Tennessee. It was Pikeville. Do you know that people are still, and it's been years. There is some fat-faced, dumpy policeman on a Shotgun Saturday Night episode that people say looked like me, and they continue to send me the freeze frame of this picture on Twitter. Is this you? Is that Jim Cornette playing the cop? Fuck. It looked about as much like me as I look like fucking Fred Gwynn. Google that one, folks. Anyway, so the point being, they came out here in this part of the country and we decided to uh, take our little baby Harley Quinn over to her godparents and leave her for a couple of days. And we went down. Well, and now I've kind of down and in, indicates or implicates that it's uh, it was south of here, but it was within a three-hour drive. And we stayed overnight in a hotel, and I actually ate in two different restaurants out in public. Now, I have observations. And those observations are pretty much the same ones that I've already made. The one thing that I miss after the pandemic is restaurants. I love eating in restaurants. I had two wonderful restaurant meals, a dinner and a breakfast. So, but I already knew that. I knew that I love restaurants and miss restaurants. You know what else I also knew? That every time I'm in a hotel room, or every time I'm on the highway, it's either going to be inclement weather or something's wrong. This has been going on for years, right, with me. Wherever I go, this is why, another reason why, that I already knew what I already knew, I hate traveling. First off, I'm not to the hotel, Brian. I'm not talking about the sleeping fuck, right? I'm talking about it's, it's a Hilton property. It's a fine place, big high-rise. It's just my just the room they give me, I think. But they've got the we go in, of course we we stopped and or we uh, got there and checked in and didn't stay in the room. We visited in the lobby area, which was nice and spacious and sparsely populated, and uh, you know had a nice dinner and it was early, so it wasn't like peak dining time. So that was all good, but we get back to the room after we've visited some more, and they got one of these fancy Dan, smart, modern, energy-saving thermostats on the wall. The thing, it, it, it's going to predict what you want it to do, and it's going to do its own thing, basically. So to get the air to come on, anything, I'm talking just anything blowing, not even air conditioning. But I'm talking just air circulation, something it's the room with nothing on is like a vacuum. It's so still and silent and there's no air and you're trying to press your face up against the fucking window, right? Like a fish. Give me some oxygen. 
So set it to 68 and the air comes on, right? Okay, but this air is so loud that if the TV is on, especially with my hearing, you got to turn it up until it's blaring in order to be able to dis- differentiate what's being said on the TV over the air conditioning. And that's not exactly conducive to going to sleep after a long day. Well, fuck it. Stacy's got her everyday Raycon wireless earbuds, and she's going to listen to one of our shows. And I have a book, and I'm going to read. So we turn the TV down. And I'm reading. Well, then all of a sudden, notice, God damn it, it's getting cold in here because this is frigid air. So I get up. And I turn the thermostat up two degrees, right? It goes off completely. And okay, well, it'll warm up a little bit, but now it's deadly silent, right? And then I find that if you turn it up one more degree, the heat will automatically come on. So now you've got a choice of absolutely no oxygen in the room, the heat on when it was 80-some degrees that day, or freezing to fucking death. So, of those three things, since we're going to bed and we're under the cover, we pick freezing to death. So I read and I, I start nodding off. And Stacy's got the earbuds in and she's starting to nod off. And God damn it. I said, okay, I'm going to turn the light off. Lay down there. And oh, I must, I must also mention the clock in the room. You know me and having to know what time it is, right? I got to know what time it is at all times. Know if I'm late or if I, what time I need to get ready. I got to keep to my schedule. How long is it before I have to leave? What, what the fuck, right? The clock in the room is dead. And of course, I haven't had a watch for the last two years because it broke and I never leave the house to be away from a clock and to go over to Walmart and get a $12 watch. So... I'm trying to fiddle with the fucking clock. Is it this plug? It's completely dead. There's no display anywhere. I plug it in a different plug. It doesn't work. Fuck it. The clock's dead. Well, we'll just go to sleep. I'll wake up early anyway. So now, lights off. The air's on. Fucking middle of the night. The goddamn alarm clock starts going off. It was completely dead. There was no reading of time. It looked like there was no power to it whatsoever, but because I left it plugged into the plug, some wise ass has set a clock. I don't know, but now we can't find it. It's dark. It's going to beep, 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 beep. What the fuck? Boom, boom. Finally find it. Cut that off. Now we're freezing. Turn the air off, right? Now I'm laying there. It's so quiet in the room, you can hear your own bodily functions, like your fucking liver gurgling and your enzymes. Deathly silent. Horrible conditions to try to go sleep in. And also, after a while, it starts getting warm. I'm under all these covers. Now I'm sweating. So I pull the cover back, turn the air back on, and now that frosty air is freezing ice crystals on the moist parts of my eyeballs and all the sweat around my neck. So I've, here's the thing. 
I had two meals in restaurants. Hopefully, they'll be my last ones. They won't be my last ones. Hopefully, they'll be my last ones. Hopefully, they won't be my last ones, but I did the odds. I did the odds, and I said, I haven't been out in public in two and a half years. If I have two meals in restaurants, what are the chances I'm going to get something? Almost minuscule. I'm careful on the way down. I'm careful on the way back. And I'm going to end up getting pneumonia from being in the fucking hotel room of this beautiful high-rise downtown major metropolitan hotel. And you know they don't change those air filters, Brian. I've heard that. Or the comforter. Yeah, well, you, here's the thing. I worry more about the sheets because the sheets get more action. So what I generally do is I leave both of the sheets over the mat. And the mattress gets a lot of action. I'd leave both sheets over the mattress and then just get under the comforter because in this particular hotel chain, they're white and you can easily see if they have not been laundered. Do you walk barefoot on the floor? Well, only when I've taken my socks off to get in bed. I don't make a habit of it, just, you know, just in case. Especially because you don't know where that floor has been. It could have been anywhere. But anyway, but it was nice to actually, uh, as I said, eat like a normal human again. Oh, but here's one other observation I'll make. Has nobody learned anything? Because I understand, okay, restaurants are back open again. Things are, life is going on. That's fine. I was wanting to drop out of life before the pandemic. But for people who are, in favor of that kind of thing, I'm happy for him. But he, has anybody not learned any common courtesy? It's not necessary to go about living your life and going to restaurants and shopping or whatever you want to do to in a hotel lobby or stand in line at a restaurant or a gas station or whatever to just walk up on strangers that are not in your group and just breathe down their fucking neck. Didn't I thought we would have at least learned to respect each other's personal area. Even if you don't have room to stay six feet, just don't come right up on people and lean on them. But it's goddamn ridiculous. And nobody's going to wear a mask, even if they're in a goddamn time capsule sealed up in a five square foot area with three other people. They'll just slobber right all over you. I think we should go on living our normal lives if our normal lives included the common courtesy to stay off the fucking back of the neck of the people around you. I, and did we need a pandemic, really, to try to learn that lesson? Or is that just common courtesy? We needed a pandemic, but didn't do the... It didn't trick. work! <clears throat> it didn't work! But anyway, speaking of something that's working, thank you, everybody, real quick. Uh, we announced it on the my show, the experience this past weekend, and uh, I'm announcing it here for the first time on your show, Brian. But uh, as I mentioned, Stacy and some of the Knights of Sin, the uh, OG cult of Cornette members like Jeremy Bagley and Lee Petrie and John Fell in Baltimore, have uh, concocted an idea to raise some money for charity of uh, the. Um, Mental Health Awareness Month is May. We're almost through with it, but 
uh, this is going to be an ongoing thing for a while. We're not cutting it off next week. And there's been a lot of talk in wrestling, obviously, about the problems that that the people in wrestling have had and outside wrestling. We were talking about, you know, Daphne last fall and Naomi Judd and uh, a lot of the WWE women on the roster and Mick Foley have plugged uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is NAMI, N-A-M-I dot org. And so anyway, the first official SIN merchandise in 15 years for all you old OVW fans or the fans of the Disciples of Sin. It's an I'm a Sin Guy t-shirt, custom-made in the Colors of Mental Health Awareness Month, and it's on sale now at jimcornett.com, and 100% of the proceeds from the shirt, um, and that's their cost and everything, they're 20 bucks a piece, 100% of that will go to NAMI.org, plus Jeremy Bagley now is, I think, matching... Everything up to 500 bucks or whatever. I can't remember what he said, but he's kicking in a bunch. Some of the other guys are kicking in a bunch. And I will match the total that everybody raises. And uh, it will all go to NAMI.org. So if you want to raise some money for a good cause and get the first official send merchandise in 15 years and make all of those people that I just mentioned happy, uh, go to JimCornette.com right now. And they are on sale under the t-shirt category i mean well apparel is what it said because hotchkiss is fancy he doesn't call them t-shirts he calls them apparel and apparently that's that's proper so anyway and let's talk about what this really is well let's do that it's a chance to change the power structure in castle cornet because if we can get <sighs> these shirts to outsell that cornet face oh come on this guy's now. got nothing to crow about anymore we got a now, new leader of castle cornet Oh, now you've given me something else to worry about because I was afraid some wise ass would want to bankrupt me if I'm matching this and order 5,000 shirts. And and now you're, <laughs> That's a good idea. And now you, even that, yes. No, they can't outsell the cornet face. That wouldn't be cricket. So don't you, don't you wise asses that hate me order this shirt just so it outsells my shirt. Remember when the heel would come out and have the picture of him? Like Lawler used to draw pictures of Jimmy Hart with his head coming out of a toilet and flies buzzing around him. And he did that for Austin Idol. And the heel would come out and say, don't you dare buy this, this picture of me like this no good son of a gun and, and tear it up. And they would fly off the, uh, off the table. Didn't the Rock and Roll Express do that with your mom? Like a picture of a dog in Smoky Mountain? Well, no, no. That, well, no, that was, they didn't sell it. But here's what happened. <laughs> oh come on don't start laughing already but uh no it was a smoky mountain tv taping and i had got i'd again i'd been to the mall and i'd seen this picture it was a big ugly droopy faced dog with its hair and curlers like an old woman and some guy you know like a not a handkerchief or a do-rag but what the women used to wear on their heads the scarf and and it just it, it was just great, and I got it. And at the start of the program, I've got this easel out there with this big picture, some picture of something covered up. And I said, Bob Caudle, I've got a beautiful portrait of my mother, Mama Cornette. And I came around, I said, I've, he's been done by some, you know, big artist or whatever. 
and I'm going to, boy, I'm going to have the heavenly bodies out here later on, and we're going to reveal this portrait to the fans. It's so, my mother's so beautiful. I got this for her for Mother's Day or birthday or whatever. And it's going to be great, right? And then we go back, and then later on in the program, after the first match, the rock and roller out there for an interview, and they're kind of looking at it sideways. And then there's some foreshadowing. I can't remember exactly what we did. And then I come out for the big unveiling. And when I whip the covering off of it, it's a picture of that goddamn dog with the fucking curlers and the scarf and the blah, blah, blah. And I lose my mind. My mother's not a dog. Oh, you no good son of a bitches. I'll kill you. And there you go. See, you should have printed them up. Ricky and Robert, considering the entrepreneurs they are, they should have printed them up and started <laughs> selling those. <laughs> well, they were very large, though. It was a poster. It was a giant portrait-sized poster thing, so they might have been hard to transport around. But speaking of being hard to transport, the action figures were slowly winding it up, folks. Um, if you, when does this show come out? With you, who knows, Brian? But um, Hawaiian Brian time. There are there are uh, a little over 300 individual orders left to go, most of them involving people ordering multiple figures or figures and multiple items. And uh, we, again, plan by the end of the first week of June to have everything to everybody in the mail that is ordered and outstanding at jimcornett.com. And we thank you for your patience as I've gone slowly mad and completely out of my mind. Uh, but by gum... We're almost there, folks. We've almost made it. Thank you for taking this trip with me. If you want anything else at jimcornett.com, uh, you can go there. There's no waiting on the T-shirts. Uh, there's very little waiting on the graphic novels, the Cult of Cornette membership certificates, the autographed 8x10s, and some of the a couple of the DVDs are sold out. We're going to be restocking some different DVDs. And um, there are still... A couple of hundred of the commentator play sets available, but if I were y'all, I wouldn't wait too much longer because then they might be gone as well. JimCornette.com. And that's that's an update for you, Brian. And that's what I was looking for, an update on what was going on in the world of shirts and figures and, of course... Well, it's better than the wrestling we're going to talk about today, unless it's old stuff. How are the questions? How Have the people supported us this week? We've got questions. We've got lots of fun. We're going to have a great time. And on that topic of a great time... Yes. We don't want to spoil the mood, because we're having a great time. <laughs> and we know we're going to have a great time. So if we, I don't know, went... If we had to talk too much about Raw, I could see our moods changing and our personalities changing, almost like the Wolfman when the moon comes out. So let's talk about Raw right here at the top and get it out of the get, way. Get it out of the way. Blow through it and hit the high points, right? Well, that wouldn't take too long. But maybe some of the funny points. That might take a little longer. A lot of this is going to be random observations. Because, of course, this was just last night since I was out of town, as I mentioned. Oh, and by the way, on the trip back, the weather forecast was supposed to be low 70s and, and partly cloudy, mid-50s, and piss-poured rain on us half the way back. Every time I get on the interstate. Anyway, uh, Raw this past Monday night. The Usos have won both tag team championships. Poor Randy Orton's back is injured. There's going to be a six-man tag team match tonight with Riddle and the Street Profits against Sami Zayn and the Usos. And poor Randy, he's, he's home 
nursing himself back to health. And here comes Riddle. The scooter and the scuba diving suit and the flip-flops. And honestly, I didn't fast forward because I was waiting to see what flew out of his ass this week. And the answer was nothing. Apparently, he doesn't get farm animals to come out of his ass if he's just doing an in-ring interview. It's got to be a match. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. So no. Well, we saw something come out of his ass this week. It was emotion. Well, I, is that what you call it? I think that's what it was. I thought he was going to cry a few times. I. That's I. I listened to him start speaking, right? And to me, he sounds like either a wimpy Lou Ferrigno or somebody that's undergoing speech therapy after getting hit in the head with a fucking brick. And I just, I can't, I can't fucking, I can't figure out his appeal. I can't listen to this fucking guy. And bro, maybe that, maybe that's part of it. He plugged the six man and that was, you know, but poor Randy, bro, he's been having a rough time, bro. With you as a partner, I see why he's having a rough time. I'd be home milking an injury too, if I had to depend on you. But yeah, that's, it's just... Was that real emotion or was that a, a dipshit acting further like a dipshit? Does he talk like that in real life? As they say, is this real life? I couldn't tell. <laughs> you know what? They got me because I couldn't tell if Randy Orton's really hurt somewhere <laughs> or if he's just <laughs> completely fine and Riddle's so stoned that he seems like he's about to cry. This was the best I've ever seen Riddle on the mic. I'll give him that. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, Randy Orton's back is hurt, and apparently he was hurt before the match, and he's really upset about it. Yeah, he's upset. Can I say one other thing? Yeah, please do. The package before this uh, promo and everything else here, everything with the Usos and RK-Bro, it's so palatable in clip form, the way the WWE uh, people put it together in videos. Yes. It's so much easier to watch that and actually get what's going on than actually having to watch it. That's it. You know, if they would just, if they would shoot the show as raw footage and then do everything as a package, it would look like the greatest shit you'd ever seen. And that's, and I think they ought to do a package on this six man riddle and the street profits against Zane and the Usos. Everybody got a separate entrance and then the Usos were last. They did a promo from the back and then they come out to the entrance and the baby faces jump them in the aisle way. And here comes referees, and they're all having a sloppy fight. And have you noticed, it's almost like when guys are fighting now, they just grab each other and just throw fake punches to the other guy's shoulder or rib section or whatever, but they're not really trying to make them look good. They just think if they wave their arms around, and since there's a lot of shit going on, nobody will specifically be looking at them in a building of... 8,000 people. There's nobody going to be looking at them. It's going to, everybody's looking at that. It's just, if, have you noticed that? It's just all sloppy fights. Nobody's trying or they, they just think they're filling time somehow with, I'm um, just move around over here. So they all get a big six way and everybody runs out and they do the jerky camera work where you can't really tell what's happening, which helps some of this work not be seen. And they go to a break. But when they come back from the break, <laughs> order has been restored. And everybody's 
standing in the middle of the ring, not in the middle, they're standing in their corners in the ring. They left on a street riot and they come back to everybody standing in their corner waiting for the referee to ring the bell and everybody's smiling and milking the crowd. Did it seem like we missed the best part of it during the break? How did they get everybody calmed down? You know, in general with Raw, there's a lot of times, even when you're watching it, you feel like you miss something or you don't understand exactly why they've jumped from one thing to another. Later in the show, Edge and his people were walking down to the ring and then like 10 minutes later, they're standing in the ring. Oh, oh yeah. Well, yeah, I got some times for you later on in the show. Uh, <laughs> I timed a couple of these things just to see. Um, but anyway, so the referee rings the bell and the first match on this program starts 23 minutes into the show. And none of these people are interesting. The matches and the booking, it, it all looks the same. They all do the same shit every week and it's the same people interacting. And it's, it's not even programs like in the old days where you anticipated the guys are working programs, so at the house show, they're going to be wrestling every week, but on TV, they're doing angles or promos about the matches or whatever. You're not watching them wrestle each other for 20 minutes every week on television, and it ain't as interesting as the old days when they did those multi-week promos or programs. So I don't, I don't remember what happened. I forgot to write it down. Somebody, I think the baby faces won, didn't they? I think Riddle hit an RKO on a heel. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> hey, I will say one thing, whatever we say about it, the crowd was pretty into it. It didn't seem like they were piping too much, at least to my ears, and I was in and out because the commentary is awful, but it didn't seem like they were piping too much. And when the fans were jumping up and down, there was actual noise coming out of their they, mouths. They did. Well, they did. They did react at the start. They were piping by the end. The piper came in later on in the show. I think it's because after a while, people are like, wait a minute, you know, we're not going to see any. It, there were matches on this program, but if you blinked, you could either miss them or you didn't really care about them to begin with. And the second one, second match didn't start till an hour and 15 minutes into the program. But anyway, Lashley, the in-ring promo where he was the smiling, philosophical Bobby Lashley. And talking about another match, a rematch with almost. And I thought the same thing. And when I talked to you earlier, you thought the same thing. It's at Hell in a Cell, but we thought originally it was going to be a Hell in a Cell. And I'm like, what the fuck? They go from a fucking the worst cage match in history to a Hell in a Cell? I do think he said that a few times. Not well, I challenge see, you at Hell in a Cell. He kept saying, I challenge you in Hell in a Cell. That's, I see. I, Bobby Lashley is is a well-spoken fellow in real life, but he he doesn't seem comfortable doing the baby face, I'm going to lay everything out, explain everything, make challenges, stipulations, wordy, verbose. He's not comfortable with it. It doesn't seem natural coming from him. I thought he was doing a great job as a heel with MVP as his manager for nuts and bolts and Bobby to be aggressive verbally. But now they send him out there. They don't, he doesn't have an interviewer to ask questions and or give details. So, Mr. Lashley, if what I'm hearing you saying is correct, then you want MVP, that type of thing, where if you do it right, 
the people get the information they need, but the baby face, especially if he's not vaccinated with a phonograph needle and just talky Tina, he doesn't have to go out there and be so wordy and get lost and trip over it or meander. They leave Bobby twisting in the wind when he's trying to explain long-winded explanations. And I th that's what happened here. And then he calls them out, almost an MVP, and MVP does the promo again, desperately trying to make this interesting. And it, I, this was maybe Freudian, or maybe he just didn't realize, but it, Lashley at one point said, he was talking about the continued animosity with him and almost. He said, me and almost ain't over. And nobody reacted, so he's correct. Lashley used to be over, but it, this is killing him. So then basically Lashley wanted a match where the winner of the match would pick the stipulations for their match at Hell in a Cell pay-per-view, which now, so no, it's not Hell in a Cell. It's, a, it's at Hell in a Cell. And he wants MVP in a match tonight, and the winner of that will be able to pick the stipulations for what their match is at Hell in a Cell between Bobby Lashley and Almost. This is laborious! While this feud has done no favors for Bobby Lashley, the worst thing they could have done is exploit his biggest weakness, which is his mic skills. He was really bad out there. And it went on for a while, and they had to know this would not be good. I mean, they, he's been on the mic. There's a reason he had MVP, because he's not a talker. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's why you have a manager. Should be more managers than wrestling, quite frankly. But he was out there for a long time, and this was painful. Well, and then... <laughs> Again, MVP fires up when he gets the opportunity to respond and he accepts the thing. But then Bobby has a, I mean, they've worked this out. It's the writers have, I'm sure, wrung every single bit of spontaneity out of this. Bobby responds to MVP accepting and the music starts. But then MVP and almost start going to the ring menacingly. Then the music stops. And everybody's moving slowly, and MVP gets up on the apron, and Lashley turns around and just punches him once he takes the bump off and almost walks back around to MVP, and everybody yells at each other, and they go to the break. What the... That was worse than ending it with no physicality it, because nothing fucking happened, but it took even longer. This show was so heavy already, and it just... So that was kind of bleh. Did you see Becky Lynch in the puffy Seinfeld shirt? Yes, but that's only part of the story. The other part was, was she on stilts? Because all of a sudden she's as tall as Adam Pierce. Well, I think they got Yoko's, Yokozuna's uh, interview box for her. Because <laughs> he, he was on a six-inch box. Because he was only my height. He was just three of my weights. Um, <laughs> Becky wants... Adam Pierce to take her loss off the books. And Adam Pierce says, how about a rematch? I'm oh God, not again. And if she beats Oscar tonight in the rematch of the match that they had last week, where at least Oscar hit the mist on her properly, then it, at the pay-per-view, it's a triple threat match with Bianca and Oscar and Becky 
at Hell in a Cell. An another multiple person match. And Becky walked so off like we all did, wondering why. why. Why is this happening to me? Shaking her head. Shaking her head. The two best things about WWE right now, to me, the two things I enjoy are Becky Lynch and Cody Rhodes. I think they're the best wrestlers on the entire show in terms of their segments never bore me. I enjoy them. Cody's great in his role here. Becky's fantastic. I wish her husband was as good as her. <laughs> But she's one of my favorite wrestlers in the whole world right now. She's great. I agree with you, except every once in a while, just with the the opposition sometimes. Just, eh. But I know what I like, and is it growing on you, Brian? Is it growing on you? Is it starting to? Is the information you're receiving starting to seep into your brain? Don't you want to join them? Do you want to be a sheeple? The judge, the House of Judgment Day. I love them. You're not giving me a full-throated endorsement. Oh, because I still I don't, don't like it. it. I don't like yeah. the gimmick. I don't like the gimmick. I'll agree they do it better than the House of Black. I'll also agree they completely stole the House of Black's fucking gimmick. Yes. And they added a little bit of the Dark Order in there just to uh, annoy another faction. Well, yeah, because, A, the, there's been a germ of an idea, and... I think germ is apropos phrasing there. There's been a germ of an idea in the dork order and in the house of black, a, an evil assemblage, a cult, a group of people working for a common goal that are led by someone, a silver toned devil, a la Jim Jones ish type of thing. That's always been there. They just picked a bunch of rejects, bumblefucks and mud show outlaws to do the dork order and the house of black, they want to be uh, the next, you know, Rob zombie horror movie remake instead of anything approaching legitimacy. And it just comes off as a bunch of people fucking around with a fucking camcorder. This is, they look good. They sound good. They, they are shot well and they have a reason. Damian Priest, now they're using him like a top guy. He's got the voice, he's got the look, and he's got the explanation. Edge saw the greatness in him and in Rhea Ripley. When you people didn't and nobody else did, and no longer will they be like the fans and the people in the locker room, sheep, being told what to do. We can help all of you, but you've got to help yourselves. And Rhea Ripley's following along in the same principle, and in Edge, Lays it all out. The truth will set you free. Judgment Day is power and opportunity. Recreate yourself. No supernatural bullshit. No B-level horror movie stunts. Edge told the sheeple, the fans, what was wrong with them. And that anybody who joins him can shatter glass ceilings like he did. There is a goal of a carrot at the end of a stick for people to join this group. There is some way... Some clear method of advancement. Edge, a near Hall of Famer. They haven't inducted him yet. <laughs> Some clear level of advancement. That's why you like this group, yeah. because you can move up the corporate ladder. <laughs> no, what, what I'm saying is, with all these other groups, they just, they, especially the dork order, that was just ridiculous. And they were. it was supposed to be all this spookiness that they were being led to join this movement, but there was never any reason 
And also because they were all job guys and they were flunkies and used that way and looked that way, who would want to be in that fucking group? And then they finally got Brody Lee, but then he's the leader of a bunch of fucking flunkies. With this, Edge is a near Hall of Famer, former multi-time champion, top guy for 20 years. He's got credibility. He looks good and he delivers it. He is dangling opportunity at anybody that wants to come along with him. They can sit under his learning tree. And obviously, since he's been one of the biggest names in the business the past 20 years, you might want to do that. And look at the the look of the other people that he's surrounding himself with. They all fucking look like stars and like they I have agree. some charisma. I agree with that. And then there is also the tease. Who's going to be next? And they wouldn't be doing this like that if there wasn't maybe somebody going to be. And now the people can think, well, who will it be? Who's going to turn? Is, is it AJ? He's been a heel. Nobody cares if it's Liv Morgan or not, but they got to mention her because it's a program. And speaking of which, then, oh, fuck, here's Liv, Liv Music. Liv Music. Liv Morgan Music interrupts their promo when they're going to the end of the match. But what were you going to say about the interview? In terms of time, how long did this promo go? It went a while. I think that's the problem. And I think that's part of the reason why I don't like it and part of the reason why it goes overboard for me. Edge looks good in the role. Rhea and Damian Priest, seeing them together like that, they work perfect. It's kind of like the male and female version of whatever this is that Edge is putting yeah. together. It looks great. But coming out there with the whole, the light show, I mean, you're coming out there with a light show and a presentation and you get in the ring and you do a speech. If he was out there for three minutes and somehow got some of this across and someone was holding a mic, because I'm old school yeah. like that. Well, I've, I like I've, it better. I've given but, up on that should be, I should just say ditto, like the kids used to say. At the top of the program, every interview needs an interviewer. I agree with you there. But, but even if you look you know what? That, you know what I wrote? If this, how about this? Instead of this being three minutes, because it's a three-hour program, how about if this was just like it was, and if I wrote if this good promo was the only one on the show... It would have got over even better because you wouldn't have seen five other segments with people out there droning on like goddamn thespians. I think it went on too long. Now, I think a lot of these things went on too long. Bobby Lashley went on way too long. In the Ooh. But this, I thought this went on too long. Who will well, be next? Who do you think will be next? Who's going to join the Judgment Day? Will it be Pat McAfee? <laughs> will it be Vince McMahon? Who will it be? Vince would want to work, though. We don't want that. But that was the thing. Is that they transitioned right into the mixed tag match. The second match starts an hour and 15 minutes into the show. And it's Liv Morgan and AJ Styles against Damian Priest and Rhea Ripley. And at least they explained the rules at the top of the match. The tag triggers the other side switch. It's guys against guys and girls against girls. They're not being completely idiots at this point. But I don't know. With AJ and Damian Priest, whatever they were doing, I'd have rather seen hip tosses and body slams. It, it was a lot of duck and block and kick and duck and block and kick and duck and block and kick. As Reggie Morton used to say, give me some tick tackles and flip flops. But when 
Rhea and Liv got in there. Again, Ripley is everything I like about women's wrestling, and Liv Morgan is the opposite. She's too small. Her shit, it's not, it's awkward. She's trying to do shit to bigger people, and they're trying to let her. It doesn't come across. I don't, I, she's too pretty. I'm sorry, I just don't see it. She's foo-foo. But, but Ripley tossed her around, as she should have most of the time, although she did take some bumps for it. But did you see? Ripley catches her coming off the turnbuckles in a crossbody, gets up under her, picks her up into a vertical suplex. Liv balances down where she doesn't let her all the way down, picks her back up again. The strength of that was amazing. And then she had her drop behind and do something else. If she'd have suplexed her then, that's a great heat spot. Because who else is doing that on the female side? So I thought when Ripley was in control, it was fine. Wasn't a fan the other way around. And they went through a break, and then finally there was heat on AJ, very short, very brief, a soup song, if you will. And then he tags Morgan, and she makes what I termed a horrible sloppy comeback. And Ripley took two great bumps for whatever it was she was doing. And then Edge actually got some heat out of the people by putting Ripley's leg on the ropes when Morgan covered her. But then AJ flies into Edge and then clotheslines Priest over the top and went for something on, or uh, Liv rather, went for something on Ripley. But Edge held her into the ropes so that, or held Ripley in the ropes so that Liv fell. Did you see that thing? And it was a bump from like one foot. You see these fucking girls be flung off the top rope and pop right back up. And it, this was, it just, boom, there it was, one, two, three. So it was Edge's intervention. They were trying to get the heel to cheat. It just, it seemed a little, a little abrupt and a little, yeah. What do you think? I mean, I didn't pay too much attention to the match. It's interesting that they've made mixed matches kind of just a normal thing. It was just, we've, there it is. We've started, you and I have started paying attention to different things. Because I just, I want to see Ripley and Edge, and you want to see Cody and Miz. Well, no, first of all, I won't disagree with you there. And that may have been when I tapped out of the show after that. But I like Ripley, and I like Priest. I'm not sold on this whole gimmick, really, the promo, but I'm... Interested to see where they go. I'm happy that there's some kind of commitment being shown to them because those are the kind of people that should be elevated in that company. And Rhea Ripley's still so young, so you can, she could have a great run. She could have. She'll be she'll run. she'll be the number one female star attraction in the business in two three years. There's almost no way around it. I think you're a little hard on Liv Morgan, and I'm not saying she's Mildred Burke, <laughs> but she's a baby face the fans I'm like. Not, I'm not even saying she's Mildred Natwick. Google her, kids. But the fans like her. She's a baby face. They've been doing this thing with her and Ripley, so they got to finish what they started. I got to give them credit for that. But out of all the women in wrestling, or the women in just the WWE that are problematic or anything, I wouldn't say she's one of them. She tries hard. Well, that counts for something. Anyway, they did a, a sports entertainment angle at the end where AJ started making a comeback, but they beat him up and Edge speared him. And there was no bell, there was no referees, there was no help, there was no urgency. The heels just do a couple moves to the baby faces and they sweeten the booze. This was where I know the booze instantly came up, but they came up before the people were actually booing on screen. So that's an hour and a half into the show, the second match is over with. 
And I wasn't going to watch the, I wouldn't have watched the next thing if anybody else was the host, but Jerry Lawler is in the ring to host a King's Court. I'm like, okay, this is pleasant after we've had the KO show and Miz TV and whatever the fuck. At least we get somebody interesting. And then it's with Beer Mayhan. And the first thing I, as soon as he was on the way down the aisle, I, I wrote, can Lawler make this entertaining? I, 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 I have no words. They have figured out something, a verbal segment that Jerry Lawler couldn't say. Uh, he, he asked, <laughs> he asked, what, what, what are you laughing at? Is this, I mean, because I took the show off mute. Cause I was like, Oh, Jerry Lawler's on raw. What are they going to do with him? And I'm like, okay, Veer Mahan, we've seen this guy do, you know, nothing for a long time now. What's going to happen here? And then when Lawler just started cracking jokes right to his face, <laughs> that's when I really didn't have any idea what the point of this was, but I'll let you continue. Well, that's the thing. The, the deal they do is Lawler starts asking him a couple of questions and old beer just stares at him and won't speak. And Lawler's uncomfortable. Oh, okay. That was a bad question. I'll ask you another one. And finally Lawler starts telling him jokes about what the Mysterios have been saying about him. Now Harry he is or whatever. And that was the only mildly entertaining part of this. And finally, Beer starts speaking with his growly voice and he <laughs> he starts okay. And within a short amount of time, he gets, starts to get lost and he tries to pick it back up. And then he's supposed to snatch Lawler and some or snatch the microphone or snatch Lawler's arm that's holding the microphone so he can take it back because Lawler's made an offhand remark. He's going to snatch the thing back. And so when he, when he snatches Lawler's arm, he snatched him so hard. The microphone flew out of his fucking hand. Then beer has to wait, wait one minute, like motion and go over and pick the microphone up and bring it back and <laughs> give it back to Lawler. So then he can hold it there and say, I smell fear on you, Lawler. I think it's this segment he was smelling, to be quite honest with you. And then the, it, Beer gave Lawler a veiled threat. I say it was veiled. It was actually positively disguised. I'm not sure whether it was a threat or not, but Lawler seemed to start to take a few steps back, so he took it that way. And all of a sudden, the Mysterio's music plays. And here comes Ray and Dominic. And actually, Lawler at one point, instead of the Mysterios, had called them the Dominics, which I think they should meet the Danucci's in tag team action. Um, so the baby faces are coming down the aisle with their music to save Jerry Lawler from getting killed by Beer Mayhan, and Beer jumps out on the floor and meets the Mysterios coming and starts beating them up. Maybe if they'd have just come out there to do a good deed instead of playing their music, his back was turned, he wouldn't have seen them. But they alerted him with the music. So they should have come in different directions, too. Well, yes. But he's beating them up, and then he presses Ray over his head and tries to throw him in over the top rope. <laughs> and he fucking throws him into the top rope, and poor Ray bounces down every rope back to the apron, completely missed. <laughs> And he shoves him underneath the rope. <laughs> this fucking guy. And then 
Now he's thrown both of them in the ring. So as he starts to get in the ring, they keep jumping up and drop kicking him or, you know, moose kicking him or somehow kicking him off the apron, right? And so he gets mad, Beer does, and stomps around for a second and walks off. So he's he's just going to take that and like it. He can, he, he feels and has been demonstrated that he can take these people apart with his bare hands, but because they've got the high ground on him in a game of King of the Mountain, he just says, fuck it, and walks off after he started it to begin with. And nobody cared. Did anybody care? Did you even hear the fake booze care? I don't think anyone has really cared too much about this whole thing so far, but Again, the funniest moment to me, this guy's a killer. He's gone out there, he's murdered the Mysterios. He just destroys jobbers. <laughs> and Lawler's standing in front of him, smiling at him, yeah. cutting jokes on him. Yeah. I couldn't believe well, it. Hey, and uh, Ray Mysterio says, you're so hairy, we <laughs> take your dog for a walk, people pet you. <laughs> um. We were an hour and 45 minutes into the three-hour program at the point that match number three comes up, and it's Alexa Bliss against Nikki Ass. Are they trying to compete with AEW's outlaw Japanese girls here by finding the hokiest outfit and the tiniest woman they can to compete against each other? I fast-forwarded, and I got to Cody and Miz, because they had the Cody countdown. At the top of the program, one hour and 53 minutes from here. So here's another thing, ladies and gentlemen. With the Cody countdown, how do they know? How do they know that all these matches are going to end and all these unscheduled interactions and street riots and attempted homicides and everything, how are they going to end right at an hour and 53 minutes from now. So Cody will be on the way to the ring. Did you ever think about that, Brian? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but with Cody, you have to ignore sense. When looking <laughs> at his booking. So it makes perfect sense in that respect. Uh, well here, this is what I timed at an hour and 53 minutes into the program. Cody's music starts and he comes out here. His entrance starts, right? And he gets about a two-minute entrance, which is very brief these days for the WWE. And at 1.55 into the show, two minutes later, they go to the break. So he gets a two-minute entrance. They go to a three-minute break. When they come back, it's a package from last week of Becky Lynch and Oscar and The Mist and the Bianca and the whole nine yards. And then they go to a Backstage promo with Oscar talking about Becky tonight. And once again, this is so offensive. Did, what human being is she being portrayed as a simpleton, as someone who's developmentally challenged, and she has the cognitive ability, intellectual capability of a seven-year-old, or is it because... She English is her second language. Obviously, she went to some fucking horrible place to learn how to speak English, and they ribbed her and taught her that. Why does she act this way, Brian? I can't explain why, but I would say if you need help trying to understand it, try to look at it like she's the granddaughter of the great Kabuki. Kabuki didn't do that. I know. She's the granddaughter. Look at these kids today. <laughs> 
<sighs> anyway, you know, as a matter of fact, none of the Asian talents, Professor Tanaka, Mr. Fuji, uh, it, it, anybody, Tojo Yamamoto, anybody in the territory days were as stereotypical and as racist and as offensive to that particular ethnic group as the way that the all of the companies have these girls acting these days. And somehow, can you imagine, can you imagine if they'd have been doing the equivalent for the African-American talent or the Hispanic talent? They didn't have, when they had crime time literally admitting they were stealing things from people on the street or when they had Eddie Guerrero, he lies, he cheats, he steals. He still didn't talk like a simpleton with brain damage. All right. That is what Vince likes. What, simpletons with brain damage? Well, people, well, yeah, he's, people he's talking hired, like that. Hired yes. a few of them for his creative. No, team. seriously, he likes that. He likes midgets that act like children, and every yeah, foreigner right. acts like they're mentally challenged. I mean, this is what Vince McMahon likes. There's a long track record of it. Well, anyway, but where we were headed with this was the timing. Cody's entrance at an hour 53 into the program. He gets two minutes. They go to a three-minute break. They come back, and they spend three minutes on Oscar's business. It doesn't have anything to do with Cody. And then finally, two hours and one minute, eight minutes after Cody started entering, they go back to the ring, and he's still standing there. His entrance was eight minutes ago. Does he have to stand there in front of the people in the building, and they're just watching him stand there? Uh, so the Miz entrance and they were really rushing because he only got two minutes for the entrance. So basically there was only, it was only a 10 minute segment between the time Cody started and the time Miz got in the ring and the bell rang. And it, it match. What, what can I say about this match? We've gone over Cody at length. He, this is his environment. His work is very good and he's a sports entertainer. And he's about to be, or he is, the top babyface in the world's biggest promotion. I've I've not liked Miz, really ever, but after what we've already seen on this show up till now, and just the fact that somebody's doing something, it's looked like Funk and Briscoe. And but did you notice this, Brian? Random observations, I said. Miz starts the heat on Cody so they can go to the break, right? Cody's laying there selling on the floor or whatever. And they immediately go to a spot for Mr. and Mrs. Miz, the reality show, where the heel in the match that we're watching is playing patty cake on the phone with his baby and carrying his baby around in his arms. Can, can you imagine if when fucking... I don't, I don't know, when Stan Hansen had broken Bruno's neck and the rematch was coming up in Shea Stadium, if they'd had a picture of Stan Hansen changing his baby's diapers with a parakeet on his shoulder. What a heel move. You're working a match against Cody and you put a commercial for your reality show there? That's a great heel move. Oh, yeah, that'll get him a tad's killing heat right there. I'd, if I was him, Miz, I'd hire security. He might be stabbed over this. Anyway, they come back. And Cody made his comeback and got the figure four and Miz got a rope break and rolled out on the floor and Cody goes to the top. He's going to do that blind moonsault again. Him, Adam Page, what if anybody, if you can do it, would you just look over your shoulder? That would make it look a lot less phony. 
But he's going to do that. But guess what happens? Seth Rollins runs out because his back is turned, just puts a hand in his ass and shoves him off the top rope. And ding, 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 there's a DQ just out of nowhere. So now we've got, obviously, it's Seth and Cody at Hell in a Cell, in Hell in a Cell. And, uh, and that'll now, be good. That will that'll be, good. be good. Yeah, that'll be good. But that's what. But that's what. But their finishes just come out of nowhere. There's no. They think they're building to them, but there's no chaos like in an Eddie Graham or a Dusty Rhodes finish. Well, let Ow, me ask you this: ahead. first of all, you know you have to give Vince's approval on anything that's going to be on that show, and he may even just put his little spin on it. But beyond that, who's the great finish guy there? Who's the guy in WWE right now that you know of that can give a good finish? Uh, <laughs> well, that may be a problem. You spent a lot of time in locker rooms with a lot of guys that had a lot of great finishes. Well, all right. Good point there. You got a point there, kid. But if you comb your hair right, nobody will notice it. The Miz, is, it was... the Miz is growing on me. He did a promo before this match. I thought that was really good. Yeah. It was anyway. Good. It was good. He said Cody is more pyro than the 4th of July. <laughs> Well, and that's, that's just on his road. But he got pushed off the top, the disqualification, two on one on the floor. And did you notice there's the female referee, there's two heels kicking the shit out of the baby face after the match on the floor, obviously not legal. The, the referee is standing there on the floor watching them do it. And just as I noticed that, well, how much more useless can you be or look like or be made to look they actually grabbed cody and threw him into the referee that was standing there and she ran away <laughs> it's like it's like it running a, a cop off a street corner when you're doing a mugging oh shit i better get out of here these fucking guys are serious Let me run call for backup which never came so then Seth goes at a glacial pace, the overly milked WWE, where nobody's coming to help. Nobody's trying to stop it. Nobody, it doesn't seem like it's urgent, so why shouldn't they take their time? And he goes over and snatches Cody's weight belt from the little kid that he had given, him, given it to in his entrance and comes over and whips Cody one real good lick with it. Uh, at least it wasn't a sledgehammer. They, see, they use sledgehammers and baseball bats eight times, ten times. But the weight belt that you could really light somebody up with four or five times and leave some nice money, one shot with that. Okay. And then the heels walk off unmolested because the cops had better things to do, and so did all of Cody's friends, apparently. Are they going to tell the story every baby-faced company is jealous of Cody? Nobody wants to come help him. And then Cody gets up, dusts himself off, starts limping. He's got a strap mark on his back. He's selling the knee that went into the stairs. And he gets the weight belt. And on the way by, as he's limping by, he puts it back in front of the little kid. Now, that was a perfect touch. That was dusty all over the place. And the people are, oh, he gave it back to the kid. So that kind of shit, he's he's great with details and stuff like that. You're never going to see Cody teleport himself anywhere. So he's great with that shit, but if they would give these guys the talent some help by giving them the infrastructure to make a chaotic angle. When was a time 
that the Horsemen, the Midnight Express and I, anybody were on dusty roads in the middle of the ring kicking the shit out of him, and there weren't referees being flung here and there, and there weren't people trying to get in the ring and save, and there wasn't some kind of urgency going on. A bell being rung? A bell being rung. But now they're just doing this shit, and there's no jeopardy or urgency, and it's just, it's a performance that people are sitting and watching. You can't really get heat like that when there's, it's not like, my God, he was saved, you know, in the twinkling of an eye by a, a, a cat's whisker or a cunt hair or whatever. It's like, well, they just finished doing what they were doing and left. But anyway, the next match, we're getting to the meat of the matter here. The next match was Elikiel against poor old Chad Gable, and he had Otis and Owens in his court. Otis and Owens sounds like a CPA firm. If you have a problem with the IRS, call Otis and Owens. And I wrote here, I don't know how much more I can take. And then in the back, later on, Cody updated his health and cut a promo on Seth for Hell in a Cell. And looks like old Seth's going to go 0 and 3. And it looks like old Seth's going to go 0 and 3. And, uh, Lashley versus MVP. Woo, Nelly. Um, it wasn't as bad as Lashley and almost because it didn't last as long and almost was barely in it. However, nothing else happened either. And I know an MVP's been injured and he hasn't wrestled in some time, and I'm not sure. I mean, he's got the cane, it looks good with his suit, but I believe. He had an injury that uh, necessitated that at one point, didn't he? I believe so, because I remember we saw him before the cane, and then he had the cane, yeah. Well, not, well, you know what? It's always that way before you have something, you don't have it, and then when after you exactly. get it, you have it. It's, exactly. It happens that way every time. Did we see him get hurt? Did it happen during an event, a premium live event? I don't think so. I don't. I don't recall. All right. But I I would I don't believe it did. Anyway. Get well soon. Get well soon. Yeah. Get the taste of this out of your mouth, MVP, as quickly as you can. He got on the bicycle, took a powder to the floor a couple times, and so Lashley follows him. And as MVP rolls in and Lashley's on the floor, almost comes over. And I swear to God, he was he I can't say running. That would be comedically over-exaggerating. He was walking briskly and stuck his right arm out and with no motion of the arm whatsoever, just walked by Lashley and, and hit him with a stationary arm clothesline and Bobby went down like he'd been hit with a fucking boat oar. And then he gets thrown in the ring and MVP hit a big boot and trash talked him and punched him a couple of times and Lashley grabbed him and hit some kind of move, and I'm not sure what it actually was. And then clotheslined MVP over the top rope, and that looked good. So MVP still got a step or two in him. And he picked him up and, and does the deal where he fireman's carries the eye and runs him into the ring post and then rolled him in. And now here comes almost. And he gets in a fight with, with him on the floor. I was like, fucking... Almost was 30 feet away maximum this whole match, but Lashley had time to 
pick MVP up and just run him into the ring post. Sorry-ass bodyguard for his manager. But nevertheless, almost in Lashley getting a fight, and the bell rings suddenly, and now we see, which I don't believe had been referred to before, and since it almost never happens in wrestling, you weren't looking for it, but Lashley got counted out. So that was about the flattest possible finish that they could have come up with. And then to try to bring the people back a little bit, since the heels just got a soup son of heat, <laughs> Lashley grabs MVP in the middle of the ring and puts him in the hurt lock and shakes him a couple times and then lets him go. And that was it. So now MVP gets to pick the stipulations for the match between Lashley and almost at hell in a cell, which is not going to be in the cell, but it'll probably be hell. And there's another match where very little, if anything happened and, or another segment, very little of anything happened at the end and everybody walked off broke, busted and disgusted as JYD used to say, you know, at this point, I really wish it was hell in a cell. It it would be hell, all right. They just did it. What's the difference? Yeah, I guess you're right. And then finally, uh, you know, again, a rematch from last week, Becky against Oscar. I didn't care for it that much last week. I wasn't that interested this week. They had a match. It looks the same as the other matches that they have. Uh, they fought on the floor. Becky conveniently fell right into Bianca Belair's lap, who was sitting in the same spot that she sits in every week when she gets involved in the end of the match inadvertently in the same fashion. Somebody, they fight to the floor and somebody falls and then somebody ducks. And that's what happened. Becky ends up in her lap. Oscar innocently goes to kick Becky's head in. Becky moves and Oscar kicks Bianca's head in. And then Becky rolls in the ring, and Oscar rolls in the ring to beat the count. Since we just saw a count out, so that's fresh in our minds. She rolls in the ring to beat the count, but she rolled in under the bottom rope, and then when she got face down on her belly in the ring, she just stopped rolling. And Becky walked over and just did a thing where she hooked her legs or her feet and rolled her over one, two, three. And now it's a three-way at Hell in a Cell. Jesus. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was the WWE's presentation of Monday Night Raw. You could hear the results right there. That's not Vince ripping up his script. It's Jim ripping up his notes, seemingly. Hold on, I need to get some matches. No, do not do that in the house. Come on, we talked I'm about gonna, that. I'm going to set it on fire. Who? <laughs> fire. Well, perhaps someone heard the your... The way you walk and talk. Well, perhaps someone heard the way you uh, walk and talk and sing about the Muna and the Chuna. <laughs> no, perhaps... You know, I do love to sing about the Muna and the Juna and the Springer. But perhaps... I love to sing about the skies of blue and a T for two and a... Well, Jim, perhaps someone, yes, wants, to, perhaps someone wants to hear your uh, Ohio players take... Perhaps someone would prefer to hear the Pointer Sisters. And if you need to get somewhere, maybe someone needs to point over there and say, hey, check out rockauto.com. Well, that's good. If you need to get somewhere, you're talking about transportation now, right? Yeah. Aren't you, Brian? You're talking about not being walking down the side of the interstate 
all broke, busted, and disgusted, a no-car-driving son of a bitch because your car or your truck or your motorized conveyance broke down? No more will that happen to you if you just remember this very simple collection of words, rockauto.com. That's all you need to remember because, folks, that way you will always have access to every part your car or truck will ever need. They've got everything, as we've mentioned, from the widgets on the Framistat to the engine control modules and brake parts, motor oil. They've even got new carpet. Brian, I know you just carpeted your office in, in there in the new last manner. I did in not. carpet from rockauto.com. No, no, I did not. If I did, if I was going to do that, I would certainly call our good friends at, or not call them. I'd go to their fine website. That's Don't it's call called, them. That's retro. Yeah. You go to rockauto.com on the internet like us kids do. You don't use the phone anymore. But, well, you told me you were getting that carpet because it was scotch guarded for Swami. Because he shits all over the place. But anyway, no, he folks, doesn't. Will you stop Rock it? Auto, well, he every once in a while. RockAuto.com is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. You can see all the prices and the brands and the specifications. And the best of all, the prices are always reliably low. Same for professionals as do-it-yourselfers. Because why do you want to get the shaft? Just because you don't have the, the certificate hanging on your wall that says you're a professional mechanic. Why, you can fuck a car up just as easily as you can pay somebody to fuck one up. So do it yourself. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car truck and write JCE in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you and they can make suitable arrangements. They might give you some of the aftermarket shit if they, if, if, you don't, uh, if they don't know that you're in with us because we give you the... The two thumbs up. Amazing selection. Reliably low prices. All the parts your car will ever need in its whole sad, miserable existence. RockAuto.com Of course, Jim, RockAuto.com has a lot of hot deals and has a lot of hot news and a hot <laughs> events happening in and around the world of professional wrestling. Fire! Hoo hoo! Fire! I love that. You remember that album cover too, with the the hot girl with the that was the best thing about them around her, the hose around the hoe. The best thing about the Ohio players were those album covers. Yes, and well, you remember Honey too, wasn't it? Uh, with sweet sticky thing, she was pouring honey all over her mammary glands. But anyway, there's been hot news, huh? Sizzling hot. <laughs> all right, let me scorching. I know it's I know it's your show, but God damn it. <laughs> I saw this right before I left town and I couldn't I decided to just wait. I didn't retweet it, I didn't comment on it, because I decided to just wait until I could break this happenstance down piece by piece. Apparently, one of our old friends, we haven't talked about him a lot because nobody's seen him in months. Old Jelly Nutella is waddled back from obscurity. Apparently, sometime back, I forget, was it six months, eight months, nine months, however long it's been, we've been free of his presence on AEW television because apparently Tony Khan got buyer's remorse fairly quickly. He thought he was getting the indie-rific standout that he was apparently sold, and he was sold a bill of goods, and what he got was a parking lot attendance. So... Since Tony doesn't really have the balls to do anything about his 
talent mistakes, he just lets their contracts run out and doesn't book them and sometimes doesn't call them or text them either. And apparently that's when Jelly's been floating around wherever Jelly goes, but he's back. And he wanted apparently to make some headlines. And he's on some clown show. I've seen the clip. It Everybody tweeted it and everybody's been emailing. He's on some garbage show somewhere in a brick holding cell in front of what looked like about 40 something people. And he's wrestling some clown. And folks, if Brian, you're going to have to tell the people that this is not a bit because they're going to think, oh, now why is he winding this guy up like that? This didn't happen. So please, after I describe it, confirm for the, the people that I have described this correctly. Jelly figures the big finish of this match is going to be a flaming super kick. So what he does is he sits down in the ring and pours lighter fluid or gasoline or some flammable or inflammable, whichever one that applies, substance to his own foot, his own boot and proceeds to set himself on fucking fire and super kicks this idiot who, who actually agreed to stand there and take that and then realizes he's got no plan to put himself out. I'm not talking about a bad plan. I'm talking about no plan. His foot is uh, continuing to burn and be on fire. And he sits down. <laughs> well, he doesn't sit down. It wasn't that fucking casual and lackadaisical. He drops down on his ass and he's patting the foot. And the foot is catching the mat on fire. And flames are now coming from the fucking mat. And the referee, the referee grabs a bottle of, of literally a 16-ounce plastic bottle of drinking water. And is pouring it, and then people start throwing more bottles of water into the ring, and people start coming and uncorking them and trying to. And <laughs> Jelly is screaming, "Ah, put it out!" I guess whatever you scream when you're on fucking fire. And nobody had a fire extinguisher. That's what I'm talking. About. There was not a bad plan. There was no plan. He forgot that after he hit the super kick. His foot would still be on fucking fire. And he turned into Richard Pryor, only it was his foot instead of his fucking face. What was the finish of that match, Brian? Did anybody ever win? The clip cut off. Did I describe that correctly? You did, and I'm not sure if that was the finish. I guess the other opponent won via fire forfeit. I'm not exactly sure. Won via third degree? What? Yeah, the winner via third degree burns. Tits McGee over here, ladies and gentlemen. Can we please get a rag and a dustpan so we can sop up what's left of jelly? I miss the days when before you had endless tables and chairs under the ring, there was a fire extinguisher. You know, actually, that's the thing. In a lot of places, we always carried one in Smoky Mountain. I think we had one in OVW. But yes, in a lot of places, you would have a fire extinguisher uh, under or around the ring or accessible when people didn't set themselves on fucking fire and forget 
that they would have to find a way to put themselves out. That was just in case it accidentally happened. So I, I, I guess he achieved, because we've established before, that Jelly is the kind of guy he enjoys the attention of people laughing at him and calling him a clueless putz and a fat, dumpy piece of shit and a fucking, you know, brown and serve roll covered in pubic hair and all the other things. He, he wants to be noted for doing stupid things because then people are noting him. I'm sure his family is proud. Uh, but so he... He wormed his way back into the news by setting himself on fucking fire in front of 42 people for no money in a goddamn cinder block building. We just wanted to keep everybody up on, on where the old AEW favorites are. Where are they now? You know, clearly this is another one of those booking mistakes from Tony Khan. He should have found a way to retain this guy. Well, if he would have set him on fire, that would have been the first match of Jellies that I would have liked on his television. Maybe they could have used him in the build-up to Cody's match and had Brandy set him on fire and then have Brandy <laughs> set the table and Cody on fire during the match <laughs> to build to it. But this, you know, Cody set himself on fire by accident. Oh, okay, fine then. What if Jericho, instead of lighting... The air above Eddie Kingston's head on fire <laughs> lit Jelly Nutella's foot on fire. Would have been a but great see, way to build but, too. But see, that was a proper fireball. If if he'd had good aim, it would have been safe and and effective and good for you and and looked good and all that stuff. He just you know. But this was real fire with real flammable liquid that not only I, I don't know whether he'll be wearing that boot again or not, old Jelly. And it's a special problem for him since both of his feet are like fucking different sizes. But it also set the mat on fire. So the mat, the, the, the guy's lost that mat. And uh, unless he just wants to put it out there with burn marks on it, maybe he could charge the, the marks $2 a piece to take pictures of it. With, you know, here's where Jelly set himself on fire. I'm standing on it. Oh, come on. You could take advantage of this. He could be the clubfoot Nutella. <laughs> hey. <laughs> that would be if 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 Dustin, when he was gold dust, was seriously thinking about getting breast implants to shock everybody, then I'm sure for his art, for his career, because he loves pro wrestling so much, Jelly will be willing to get his foot amputated. And then he could come and he that if he had done this 35 years ago, he could have been the one legged wrestler that could play Long John Silver that Jim Hurd was looking for at TBS. Yeah, foot Von Eric. Oh, and here's Carrie's second cousin, Stumpy Von Eric. You thought Chris looked like shit. Here's the other cousin, Boy. Waldo's other son. <laughs> Waldo's son he had with a motel maid in <laughs> Buffalo and fucking... Uh, all, all kidding, kidding aside. aside. All kidding aside and taking out of the equation the people that were the participants here. What are your thoughts in general about wrestling promotions using fire especially indoors and especially in a smaller building is that irresponsible nowadays to i mean if anything went wrong they weren't prepared with a fire extinguisher or anything for this if anything no, no. went wrong and that it spread somewhere it would have been a disaster well no i, th I think they should do it again they should do it some more i think jelly's next move should be a flaming headbutt <laughs> and do it exactly the same way <laughs> no um uh, 
to your question. And by the way, Mat- was- Matsunaga invented that move. <sighs> God, no, actually, it was who's the fucking guy? God damn it. It was Matsunaga. Marty, Mar- no, Marty, oh, Marty uh, Gorman. Marty Gorman invented <laughs> the flaming headbutt at Smoky Mountain Fan Week in 94. And for 17 people that may, some of them may still be alive that know what we're talking about, that's fucking hilarious. You, it, using fire in pyro, yeah, fine. If you've got a legitimate licensed pyro guy in a building big enough and a show, you know, opulent enough with a budget to do it, and that's done safely. And even that, sometimes the WWF guys, uh, the pyro guys or whatever, they almost blew Undertaker's head up one time. But, and I mean, Terry Funk used to do a deal where he would have his branding iron and he could set the end of his branding iron on fire. So he came out with a flaming branding iron and that was cool, but he could actually take his towel that he also always carried. It was a wet towel and just put it over the end of it and put it out after his entrance. He didn't try to actually brand anybody with it. I, uh, the, the fireball, somebody's going, Cornette, you threw fire. Yeah. The fireball is the magic. And we've talked about it before. And it is neither using gasoline nor, lighter fluid, nor a real fire that's going to catch and spread, unless, of course, the particular victim has used a lot of hairspray, in which case a fireball might give you a nice little singe. It comes down to, no, these stupid idiots with the flaming tables and the flaming body parts and the setting something on fire and then hitting somebody with it. That's fucking stupid. And it's ridiculous, and it's so, not only so difficult to smoothly pull off and do that it looks always phony and requiring cooperation, except the only part about it that's phony is it does require cooperation. Otherwise, it's real fucking fire. And that's just, again, stupid. And it's stupid for the liability to the wrestlers, and it's stupid for the Those mats ain't cheap. Those canvases for a ring, if you get a new one these days, that's $1,500, two grand, whatever, probably. It was almost that several years ago. And and the liability to the fans. What the fan in these smaller buildings and these outlaw shows? We saw when the wrestler got headbutted a week or two ago that these little mud shows, they don't even know how to handle a fucking fight between a fan and a wrestler. Now they've got to be firefighters and what's experienced EMTs. There's not, if there was a doctor in that building, when the idiot set himself on fire, he was in the crowds at the crowd. He was in one of the two rows of ringside that were filled slumming and probably didn't want to be recognized because he was a legitimate human being in the community. They don't have any personnel that can handle anything like this. And it's just fucking stupid. And this is the classic definition of marks. All these garbage match wrestlers and all these outlaw fucking mud show indie wrestlers that do shit like this are marks. They're marks for themselves and they're marks for what they think that the wrestling business is. And they will do this shit because they think that some fucking idiot somewhere that has even more of a miserable misspent life than they do will fucking go, oh, that guy's cool. Well, fuck you. I'd rather not make myself cool by setting myself on fucking fire. So no, it's stupid and irresponsible and dangerous. 
And I hope somebody fucking sues somebody just for the goddamn general principle. All right. Well, let's get moving on the general principle of the show here, which is the questions and the various thoughts yeah. that come from those questions. <laughs> that covers the jelly fire. Let me cross this out. <laughs> yeah, cross, cross old jelly out with his manager, Fire Marshal Bill. Let's talk about another hot issue in wrestling, and it's one that we did breaking news audio about a week ago. And of course, it was bonus audio at the end of last week's drive through which was Sasha Banks and Naomi walking out on Raw. Yeah. And we covered that and the WWE's initial reaction and word that apparently came from the camp of Sasha Banks and Naomi. And now a few other things have happened. Have you been keeping up with this story? I Well, I've been out of town. You may have heard about that. So I didn't, I didn't keep up over the last couple of days with any late-breaking developments. I know they have been suspendified indefinitely. If not sooner. I have some quotes here. Let me read you this. Jim, this apparently is what Michael Cole said on SmackDown. And I watched this. You have to see him. He's like tweaking out. He can't stop like moving around. His hands are going <laughs> and everything. But again, tell me if you think this is a bit heavy. On the show, they said, Sasha Banks and Naomi let us all down. Their actions disappointed millions of WWE fans and their fellow superstars. So because of what Sasha and Naomi did this past Monday night, they have been suspended indefinitely. So what do you think of saying that they let us all down and they've disappointed their fans and the superstars? Well, that's directly from Vince. And it, the, the psychology of it is that they have basically tried to group the WWE is a company and the fans together on the side of people who were let down and isolated Sasha and Naomi on the side of the people who let other people down. Forgetting the fact that they have already come out and said that this is, was all uh, their refusal to do what we wanted them to do. They wouldn't be good trained fucking puppets or, chimpanzees and follow along and when we say jump they say how high that's the way they did it heavy-handedly the week before and now vince thinks that he will get sympathy the company will get sympathy that poor wwe those two girls let them down and that would have been the way to do it uh, uh, 30 years ago you would you would blame the wrestler and you would try to put yourself in the common position with the company in the common position with the fan and say, boy, we really wanted to bring you this match folks, but they wouldn't let us. And we really, it, it, that's the, and it would work again. If the company and everybody running it had not been presented as evil heels that take advantage of the people's favorite wrestlers for 30 years. So for all the same reasons that we said on the clip last week and the show last week and whatever, is any fan of the WWE buying the company line and siding with them and mad at Sasha and Naomi, or are they still going, well, yeah, I'm glad somebody stood up to these fuckers after all this time. Do they, do they not have the majority of the sentiment in their corner, Sasha and Naomi? It's a weird thing when people go to defending the company and the system that's at fault. 
Because even if you don't like the person, and even if your argument is you have to be reasonable, you have to work with them, the WWE reaction is the whole story here. It's not Sasha Banks saying, I'm going home, and it's not Naomi going with her. Well, let, let's Sasha's going to Hollywood. Naomi may have a long detour at home. Sasha could do a lot of things. I told you, I'm not sure if you, because you, know, you don't watch a lot of the women's stuff, realize just how big of a star she was there. But all, all those women there, she's at that top level with those fans. Like Charlotte, yeah. her, Becky, uh, really that original NXT women's class that came up. Did have a few interesting things happen over the past few days. One, Snoop Dogg, who is the cousin of Sasha Banks. Cousin, cousin Snoop. He, on Instagram, put a picture of him talking with Sasha with the, uh, not a hashtag, but the description just says bloodline. So a little uh, toss there to <laughs> Roman Reigns, I guess. And also a quote here I'm seeing from Pat McAfee from his podcast. Let me read this. The Sasha Naomi thing? That was my first time hearing what Cole was saying live there. I have no idea what to think there. I have no clue. This is a very fascinating thing. She's a superstar. They were our champions. What's happening? I honestly have no idea what to believe in this whole thing. They keep me out of the loop on everything. I have no fucking idea while Cole was doing his thing. I was very fascinated. What is going on right now? I wish I had more answers for people. A couple of people asked me during my chat with Pat on Saturday, what was going on? It's like, fuck, I feel like you know more than I do, literally, as it was happening. And that was in reaction to people posting him sitting next to Michael Cole, reacting to Michael Cole saying this on SmackDown, and he had no idea what Michael Cole was going to say there. But that's also, that's the longest I've ever heard anybody speak and not say anything. There was, there, was, there was certainly no insight there into what his opinion of the whole thing is. You've never heard Derek Jeter. Yeah, you're right. Well, a lot of people don't think, think it'd be like it is, but it do. So the other thing is the uh, New York Post put up a story today. Now they're covering this. Oh, for God's sake. Would, would, uh, 20 years ago, during the height of the Attitude Era, would, if Steve Austin fucking walked out would the new york post have covered it when 10 million people were watching every monday night if clickbait was as popular then as it is now yes they'd be covering it <laughs> but the headline here is wwe's sasha banks naomi pettiness won't fix the real problem well so there it is the new york post now on the case what are your thoughts now looking at this whole picture and has the wwe done themselves any favors in their way of dealing with this no, that's what I keep saying. And we, when we talked about Sasha and Naomi from their standpoint, yeah, the creative was the shits and what they were supposed to be doing didn't make any sense for them. And it's about damn time somebody stood up and, you know, put their foot down or whatever, because I mentioned everybody's creative sucks. And it it's, it's not going to change anything with, it might change something or it might even not if, the top gave Lashley or Brock or Roman or McIntyre, so but not Sasha and Naomi, so that's not going to change anything. But like we said, if Sasha's got a backup and at least Naomi's husband still has a job, that's fine. But as far as the company, no, they look like shit. Because again, they've taken the opportunity to 
damage their business on an ongoing basis by once again pissing off the fans, and especially the the hardcore ones, the only ones they've got left, the really core 2 million people that watch WWE now, and they've damaged the business by telling everybody again, playing out, reiterating it, we tell these people everything to do on this program and they rehearse it. Nothing is spontaneous. All this is meant to happen. And that does a lot more damage, cumulative damage, damage in people's subliminal perception of the whole thing on an ongoing long-term basis a lot more then they're going to lose money just because Sasha and Naomi ain't on the fucking card. So they've shot themselves in the foot thinking again, because that's what Vince thought he was going to be the baby face with Brett screwed Brett. And then it didn't happen. He, he becomes a heel. His whole family's been heels for years. And now he's in the same place 30 years later or whatever. He thinks he's going to be the baby faces and the fans want to take up for the wrestlers. They don't want to take up for the goddamn office. So that's the whole thing. Well, Jim, another angle of uh, the Sasha Banks story, or I guess another person diving into the mix, has been CM Punk. He had a few tweets on Twitter. In case you didn't know where tweets come from. He had a few I tweets on Twitter. Where, where did, he, did he pin him up on the side of a building in downtown Chicago? Have you seen these already? I have not. I've been gone. Well, I didn't know if you were on your smartphone, you know. Oh, yeah. I couldn't even get a fucking alarm clock to work in my hotel room. Apparently there were a couple of tweets here, so tell us uh, what you think of these. The first one came reportedly in response to a tweet from Matt Cardona, who of course was Zack Ryder for years in WWE. He, I'm trying to see what he did here. He joked that he felt he was being shafted. He should have placed his neck brace on the desk of WWE creative and said he was being disrespected and walked out. And CM Punk was inst instead of letting him fire him like they did. And C CM Punk replied, "If you'd go back in time to stand up for yourself, you should stand up for workers now." Boom! There you go. Apparently, FTR got behind that too, and FTR tweeted out in support of Sasha Banks. But then the other tweet that got a lot of attention was one the other day. CM Punk tweeted out, and by the way, we forgot him on our list of people that walked out of wrestling. Oh yeah. <laughs> Of all the things to forget, we forgot CM Punk walking out. Well, that that's one of those things that goes without saying, which is why we went without saying it. But here's his tweet. Doesn't matter if your opinion of your coworker is positive or negative. Stand with them, because they'll do the same thing to you, and you'll wish someone helped. Trust me, you're expendable. Together, you're unstoppable. That's very perceptive, because uh, once again, if one or two or three people walk out or want to leave or whatever the cat, that doesn't change anything together, which is what they were going to try to do when Hogan stooged the union in 85 and nobody's ever done anything together. It's always an individual or two. And that's why nothing changes. The tweet that CM Punk sent out was retweeted by Miro who put oh a Oh boy, where is he by the way? He's been apparently filming a show in New York. Well, skippy for him. For for 6 months. <laughs> apparently it was a uh, a big small part. 
But a big small part, Miro retweeted for a big small man. <laughs> Miro retweeted CM Punk's tweet and just put a smiling face emoji with tears of laughter coming down his face, seemingly mocking CM Punk's comment. Well, do we know that that's it? I mean, did, is is it just laughing that ah he said what everybody knows is true, or is he just laughing at him? I don't know. I guess you could see it that way. I saw it as him mocking CM Punk. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? Well, if he comes back to AEW, maybe that'll lead to something. You think Punk could get anything out of Bluto? I mean, Miro? Yes. He was the, he, he would. Why couldn't he have left to go shoot a movie when he was friends with Pip Sabian and Penelope Pitstop and then come back and still be there when he was the, the monster Miro? He just got good and then he left. Yeah, I couldn't answer that, but there's the latest in the world of Sasha Banks and Naomi, and I guess CM Punk as well. Jim, let's uh, do quickly a review or a preview of the AEW Double or Nothing pay-per-view event coming this weekend from Las Vegas. Are you ready for this one? That's right. It's from the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. Double or Nothing. Can I pick nothing? I think you can, and uh, we'll see. But do we have to watch it? We do have to watch it. People are expecting it. We don't have to it. watch it twice. It's not double or nothing. We can just watch it once. We certainly can. We certainly will only be watching this once. Although a match or two may be special, but here's the card. I believe this first match will be on the pre-show. Hookhausen, the team of Hook and Danhausen, will take on Tony Nese and Smart Mark Sterling. Oh, good Lord. All right, so <laughs> let's just take Hook who was a little something special getting over organically and let's put him in with a manager and a fucking comedy mascot that's about to replace Pockets. They got a new one-joke joke. Three years of a guy with his hands in his pockets and now it's going to be three years of a guy painting his face up like Cesar Romero on the 66 series of Batman and trying to curse people with his pointed finger. On the heels of that match... For the AEW TBS Championship, Jade Cargill, the champion with the baddies, <laughs> versus Anna J. Oh, geez. Where did, 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 did we know about this? Where did this come from? I'm just seeing this now. I didn't know that this was the match. Oh, no. boy. Um, from what I remember of Anna J, is she the one that's not good or really rotten? Well, she's not rotten, and she's somewhat good. She's young and new to the business, and she looks great, and she's athletic, so there's a world of potential there. Uh, well, let's see if those worlds collide or not. And I have to think that her and Jade are probably training together, all things considered, considering who works with them, and they've probably been working on this match a while, so it'll be interesting to see how this comes out. I would hope they've been training every single day. It'll be easier that way. For the Men's Owen Hart Cup Tournament Final, it will be Adam Cole versus either Kyle O'Reilly or Samoa Joe. And while we have not been very high on Adam Cole's work of late, those are two intriguing opponents, Samoa Joe or Kyle O'Reilly for him. For business, it should be Samoa Joe and Samoa Joe should beat him. For the sake of a really good match on pay-per-view, it should be Adam Cole against Kyle O'Reilly and Kyle O'Reilly should beat him. <laughs> but I have a feeling of those two options, Tony will go to column C and he'll put Adam Cole over whoever. 
because of his backwards booking philosophy of bringing big stars in, beating them with undercard talent, and then having them go over main event guys. So I'd love to see Samoa Joe get a big push, win the whole fucking thing. I would take Kyle O'Reilly. I'll be disappointed if Adam Cole's doomed run is rewarded with this thing uh, uh, over either of those guys who still have potential. Kyle has been damaged a little more than Joe. Joe's kept himself, well, kept himself strong and hasn't been booked to do anything horribly stupid except for his interaction with, you know, Zippy the Giant Pinhead. For the Women's Owen Hart Cup Tournament Final, it will be either Tony Storm or Dr. Britt Baker DMD versus either Ruby Soho or Chris Statlander of Long Island. Can we pick none of the above? I, 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 are, where are we going to see those final two slots locked in? They're not going to double whammy us on Wednesday night's Rampage, are they? Is something for, or Wednesday night's Dynamite. Maybe they'll save something for the show nobody watches. Maybe, I'm not sure, and I think Rampage may be live this week because of uh, them being in Vegas for the show. But the next match, for the AEW Women's World Championship... Oh, Jesus, how many girls' matches? How many matches, period? Ten matches altogether with the pre-show match. But Thunder Rosa, the champion, versus Serena Deeb. I think it'll be probably the best girls' match in ring that they can put together i hope that there's no more long-winded promos but i i will actually i will watch that match i won't watch the other girls i'm probably if 10 matches i'm gonna tell you now but i'll watch that one because they actually know what they're doing for the aew world tag team championship jungle boy and luchasaurus with their chaperone christian cage versus team taz minus taz Versus Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland. Okay, maybe I will watch Jane Cargill's match. Um, <laughs> I get a, a triple threat tag team match in this company with the fucking dinosaur. It's going to be unbearable. Uh, this will be, I don't care what happens because it's not going to make any sense and it's going to be a shitty match. I. Yeah, Again, I don't think there's any way where you, if I'd love to see Keith Lee and Swerve against Starks and Hobbs, that would be great. But the other two in there will fuck the whole thing up and it won't make any sense. And probably it, it, if I had my druthers, I'd put the belts on Starks and Hobbs out of this just to get them off fucking Dino douche and, you know, his little sidekick. Uh, what was, um, Baloo in the Jungle Book. We ought to start calling Jungle Boy Baloo. Was he the was he the kid or was he the bear? No, Baloo was the bear. Mowgli, Mowgli was the kid in the Jungle Book. Mowgli and Dino. That's who they are now. And again, there could always be interference. There could always be something we don't expect. But oh, well, you know, there's gonna be. Well, what I'm gonna say is, as of this point in the show, as we're going through the card, and I can see the rest of the card here, there's no FTR on this show. Well, no. Why would they want to put the best tag team in, in the company that are having singly or as as a duo the best matches in every promotion these days? They don't want them to go out there and show these other mooches up. 
Then we have the men's Smith Hart Cup tournament final. The Wait Jer- a minute. <laughs> what? The Jericho Appreciation Society, comprised of Chris Jericho, Matt Menard, Angelo Parker, Daniel Garcia, and Jake Hager, versus Eddie Kingston, Santana, Ortiz, and the Blackpool Combat Club, comprised of Brian Danielson and John Moxley, with William Regal. Anarchy in the arena. And a partridge in a pear tree. So obviously, no DQ, no rules, a bunch of furniture, stupid sports entertainment shit, and it will go a while. That's my prediction. I don't care who wins. It doesn't make any sense anyway, and it's not going to do anything for their business. If all of those people, and Danielson, in my opinion, and we've talked about it, is one of the biggest stars in wrestling at this point that they've now hidden and neutralized, but even though there are some talented people in that match, this match, as it is presented, as it has been built, and as it will be performed, It's not going to make one bit of difference to their fucking business whatsoever. It's just going to goddamn make everybody more miserable and give some people a headache. Well, the next match, six-man tag team action, otherwise known as a trios match. (sighs) The House of Black, comprised of Malachi Black, Buddy Matthews, and Brody King, will take on Death Triangle of Pac, Penta Obscuro, and Ray Phoenix with Alex Abrahantes. Jeez. I, w- I wonder if they'll put them in the, de- the death triangle in the death spot. After the 10-man, they'll just drop it down to a six-man. And you know, they're going to do the same kind of shit. But will we what? see a possessed Julia Hart? That's the question. Oh, hopefully. Hopefully she'll be repossessed. Again, this is going to be a mess. They're going to get in their own way. Death Triangle. Pack had all that potential, and we, wow, look at him. He looks great. His booking has been shit. He was gone in the pandemic. We understand that, but he won't get off the fucking top rope. There is a point in every match where he goes up there and just takes forever to do some shit that makes no sense. He can't edit himself. And Penthouse and Felix are what they are. We've seen it. We've seen it. And the the black fellas over there on the other side, buddy, I mean, this is going to be an indie outlaw wrestling fans dream match. Because they're oh, going to no. do all no. the things that the indie outlaw wrestlers do. No, that match won't be a dream match for the indie fans. The next match will. It is Uh-oh. Hardy versus Hardly. Oh, God. The Hardy Boys of Jeff and Matt Hardy versus the Young Bucks, Matt and Nick Jackson, with their handler, Brandon Cutler. Yes, and I understand that he gives them handies on a regular basis. So here's what they did, was they brought FTR in and they beat him. And then they never gave him a rematch for a year and a half. And then they give him a rematch, and FTR actually has the secret to having a great match with anybody, even the Hardly Boys, the Cucamonga Kids. So now, instead of the rubber match on a big pay-per-view, we get the dream match that would have been a dream match if they'd have done it first 
when they reunited the Hardys and the Hardys had reunited themselves against the Cucamonga kids, but since we have now seen not only the Hardys reunited against job guys, but also singles matches, tag team matches, the groundbreaking first time ever Jeff Hardy versus Adam Cole, and neither of the Hardys look like they can get up in the morning without calling a wrecker from AAA, much less fucking take bumps, and the matches have all been the shits, and their booking and creative has been caca. I bet you that the Cucamonga kids will beat the Hardys, and there'll be some fucking foolishness in the finish where the Cucamonga kids actually end up beating the Hardys flat but can pretend they had an out. And FTR ain't on the card because they would have a better tag team match with two fucking schlubs from the hot dog stand than this match will be because the Hardys are broken down, the bloom is off the rose, they've exposed the Hardys now and made them regular talent on the roster, just two more of the boys, nothing special anymore, and now they have this match. They have botched this probably worse than they've botched anything uh, in recent memory. Well, Jim, another match that we expect to see will be MJF versus Wardlow. Well, and they can't actually advertise it because if Wardlow hasn't finished going through all of his hoops and bells and whistles yet, right? Correct. But obviously, they better have it. And that is, that's the, what's drawing the money. There is, of all the card that you just delineated, those are matches that the AEW fans, I'm sure, will love because they're the same kind of matches that they see all the time, and they were the people that were already going to buy this thing anyway, and they were the people already going to watch it and already interested in it. There is one match on this card, one and a half, that would actually sell a pay-per-view or move a ticket if the parameters, if the the reasoning was just, we want to see what's going to happen. There's only two matches where you really want to see what's going to, they want to see a bunch of fucking car wrecks and furniture and people taking goofy bumps, but what's really going to happen because we're interested in these people, in these personalities, who the winner and loser is, not just a bunch of cool stunts and tricks. You've got Wardlow and MJF, and you've got, I said a match and a half, you got Punk and Page, because even though Page is about as interesting as a goddamn smelly wash rag after you've washed your crotch. People want to see what Punk's going to do and whether or not he's going to win it. But MJF and Wardlow, in large part, is the heat of this card. It better go on last, or if it doesn't, and Punk and Page goes a little long, they may see uh, an early exodus from this thing in the arena. Wardlow MJF prediction. Um, well, I think it's, you know, let me say this. There would be a way if somebody was really creative for MJF to beat Wardlow. But I'm thinking that because of what they've got going, I think Wardlow needs to get a victory not a decisive victory, and I'm not talking about a DQ or a count out or whatever. I'm talking about he got him, but he didn't get him. One, two, three, but oh, something else happened. Or it was close, or there was a 
malfunction at the junction, miscommunication. Wardlow got that, but then they do something heinous to keep it going. I don't know that you want to put Wardlow's shoulders down right now. And MJF has lost, what, twice? Is that where we're at? I think so. You're, look, you're looking it up now in the official record book. He's never been pinned, though. But he's only he's lost twice. So once a year, and this one, if it's a pinfall, I, I don't think that would be bad with the, the performances he's given and the, the people are into him. If you're going to do it, this might be the time. And then if he becomes the AEW champion in the next year or so, well, Wardlow was the first guy to beat the guy who currently holds the AEW title, that type of thing. And what is your prediction for the AEW World Championship match? Not not what you want to happen or what you think should happen, but what do you think will happen? What I think will happen is some way or another, Adam Page could come out of that thing still the champion. And I think that is exactly what shouldn't happen. Because it's over. The experiment is over. Nobody gives a shit about this milk sop. And that's the way you portrayed him and made him look. He had all the potential in the world at the start three years ago. Young, good-looking guy, athletic. People already like him. And by the and he can work and do some shit if you kept him away from sometimes his worst instincts. But what have they done? <laughs> They've stuck him with twinkle toes. They booked him to be a drunk and an idiot and associated him with job guys and had him do comedy. And then they ended up with the two biggest names they've signed since they came into business, Punk and Danielson. Both came in at the same time, and because Tony Khan didn't take his Ritalin or whatever it is that day and, and calm himself down, said, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I was going to go two years ago when I had no fucking thought that CM Punk or Brian Danielson would ever work for me. And I'm going to put the belt on this fucking Yahoo that we've booked into being a fucking numb nuts. And now he's got the weakest world champion in wrestling and nobody gives a shit except the people that are already there. And the people that are already there, you can't run them off. But the people that ain't there, you can't fucking drag them in with free beer and pussy. So there you go. I hope Punk wins it and then has a nice program with Danielson. Just so I enjoy watching this show every once in a while. That would be nice. And of course, Tony Khan's been making some roster moves lately. We've seen wrestlers have their contracts expire and they vanish or light themselves on fire. Different things have happened. But perhaps AEW could start pushing them in a different direction, saying, look, you can't work here anymore. And maybe wrestling overall isn't for you, but we know a place where you can learn a skill that you can apply for a new trade and a new job. But you know what? Maybe it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, Brian, because I've been thinking about this. And if the wrestlers in AEW are not qualified to be professional wrestlers and they need to change their careers, well, maybe if they could somehow learn, learn to write inexplicable gibberish that's sufficiently indecipherable enough to earn a spot as a pro wrestling writer, well, then they could still work for the company just in a different position. And folks, if you want to go to school and learn how to write a bunch of shit that nobody in the world knows how to read, you need Codecademy. If I'm talking right now, they will teach you how to write the biggest bunch of gibberish you've ever seen in your life. Nobody knows what the fuck this shit says, but it works somehow. So 
whether you want to learn all the coding languages like Morse and Semaphore and Python and Hitomolsis and Squall and JavaScript, if you want a new career as a pro wrestling creative writer where everything that you put on paper has to completely confuse everybody and make no logical sense to any flat-footed human being walking the face of God's green earth, you need to put some of this gobbledygook down on paper with the folks at Code Academy. A new career where they will pay you to do this. Even the people paying you won't know what the fuck it is you're doing, but they'll pay you to do it because it's hot and it's trendy. Folks, right now you can advance with skills to build websites. There's something else nobody knows how they work. But people use them. Well, people know you, how they work. People do know how they work. The people at Code Academy know how they work. That's why they teach you. Well, that's because Code Academy is in. We've talked about. It. I didn't want to make mention of the lizard people and the bots that are going to take over the world. They're in. So Code Academy knows, but nobody else knows. But they'll throw money at you if you've got these skills because it's trendy, folks. This is the wave of the future. This is how people are going to be supporting themselves coming up after I'm gone in potentially a week or two. Folks, you can join the over 50 million people learning to code with Code Academy and see where coding can take you. You'll get everything from a programming personality quiz. You take that, and then not only will they tailor career advice for you, but they will also recommend friends you need to dump and habits you no, need to change. No, they it's won't. It's a personality quiz to make your personality fit in with the rest of the bots at Code Academy, you'll get instant feedback like never do this again or change your shorts. And they'll test your code. And then if you get it right, they will do a mind meld with you so you can pass that information on to other people by mental telepathy. It's not how it you works. You can build your portfolio and get a certificate of completion once you're completed. And once you're completed with Code Academy, folks, you're finished. So right now, Land your dream job in web development, programming, computer science, data science, and tons more, including asphalt and driveway resurfacing. That's what they're doing behind me right now at the neighbor's house. You can get 15% off your Codecademy Pro membership right now when you go to Codecademy.com and use the promo code EXPERIENCE. That's promo code EXPERIENCE at Codecademy.com to get 15% off Codecademy Pro the best way to learn to code, that's C-O-D-E-C-A-D-E-M-Y dot com, promo code experience. Pal around with the bots and the lizard people, and maybe you can even get a job in wrestling with Code Academy. Well, and, and by the way, we have some news here about uh, this past Friday night SmackDown. Apparently there was an incident which I haven't had time to peruse yet uh, because I was gone. Did I mention that? But Apparently, Michael Cole was censored, or was uh, his audio oh, was good. was deleted. Well, no, not about a, time. They're not finally listening off. to the fans. Look at this. No, he wasn't completely. He wasn't banished from the program. His audio was clipped and dropped out when he was calling something. Apparently, it was a move that Raquel Gonzalez Rodriguez. Uh, she used to be Gonzalez. Now she's Rodriguez a move that she did and he was calling it and apparently now I'm trying to read this cuz he 
Apparently, he called it a chingana bomb, and in Spanish, the word chingana is like a headstrong female. But the people at Fox heard it because there's there's a saying that sounds like this, apparently, in Spanish, that the English translation is, fuck your mother. <laughs> so somebody at Fox... <laughs> that Michael Cole was saying that she gave the fuck your mother bomb. That's a great finisher name. So he's going for the fuck your mother. (laughs) Fuck your mother. So they bleeped him on SmackDown. I I honestly, obviously folks, um, Spanish is not my second language because I don't have one. I, I, Got a halfway good grip on the first one at most times, but I don't, so I don't know Chingona. It's C-H-I-N-G-O-N-A. That's apparently what her bomb was called. But uh, there's some very uh, similar phrase or something. Maybe some of the, uh, this, I got this news off ITRwrestling.com. Our friends over at Inside the Ropes were reporting on it, uh, that that was the reason for his, audio editing but this happened outside the ropes uh well well yes it was outside at the uh at the commentator desk but they cover inside outside all around the ropes and uh, so if any of our hispanic fans can please um oh and here's another itr wrestling my friend kenny mcintosh pissed all over this guy's post toasties on twitter this fucking moron remember jackson Riker? i guess now his Name is Lael or whatever. Uh, his What's real his name, name? <laughs> Lael Chad. Is that the one? The Jackson Riker fellow. He was, no, he was Gunner. Wait, hold on. Who's What's Lael? Is that what you're saying? There was one of them. His name was Chad Lael. Yes. C.W. Lael slash Gunner. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't know what any of this his is. Real, he used to, he used to be Jackson Riker. He was Gunner before that. His real name is Lael. The point is he tweeted, rise up, rise up against abortion, against homosexuality, against gender agenda, against that which goes against the word, word in capitals, a uh, word qu- capitalized, W. Share love in doing so. We all have faced times in sin where a brother or sister showed us Jesus and his love. Church, we must love and speak truth. That may be an abbreviation there. <laughs> Not English, but true. And a lot of people like this Andrew Everett said, fuck Gunner. And this Dan Barry said, rise up, rise up against Gunner, against his ridiculous ideologies, against his misguided agenda, that which goes against common decency. Share love in doing the opposite of what he asked. We all have faced stupidity on this bird app. We must quote, tweet, and speak truth. So the guys are religious, anti-homophobic, anti-abortion, goofball, uh, and everybody's pissing on him about it. But Kenny McIntosh, I wish I could find the tweet now, but he's the one that called attention to it on my Twitter because he basically was like, look at this fucking bell end, as they say over there. And somebody tweeted some more religious shit at him. And he said, okay, I tell you what, me and my friends will all just stop being gay and start learning the word of God. Will that make you happy? Fuck you. So I'm telling you, these people are fucking dangerous. They think this shit. 
They think you can pray the gay away or just change your mind and you'll suddenly start loving those boobs. It's fucking chemicals, people. That's what we're made of. Every single person on the earth is a science project. It's a different mix of chemicals in everybody's body, and that's why everybody's different. And if there was a God, well, the God was the fucking science teacher in charge of the experiment, and he mixed everybody up that way. So he did some good work, he did some bad work, and a lot of people, he did some shitty work, but it's his work if you believe in him. So, but when you bring logic into religious people's minds, it tends to fucking short circuit shit. But anyway, so did you see Taya Valkyrie's response to, I I did not, I did. I should follow her. She's a a fine perky young fella or young female, young young female. Well, she replied to Gunner with fuck off, dude. (laughs) Well, that's that good. That says it all. I think it does. Yeah. So from all of us, fuck off, dude. Well, let's uh, get all the wrestling Twitter news out of the equation right now. Did you see the latest from Ryback commenting on the Sasha Banks Naomi situation? No, I didn't. But is 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 he fur or again it? Does he is he going to do a poll where he asks people to vote on whether he should go back and take their spot? I don't know. I mean, he sometimes. He may have a good source. He may know what's going on. You never know. He was there for a long time, and I'm sure he has lots of friends. Here's (laughs) what he put on Twitter. Hearing rumors from sources in WWE, it's at WWE, but I'll put it in English, in WWE, that Sasha and Naomi actually walked in on Vince McMahon naked with wrist-ankle Velcro straps to the wall and a (laughs) penis pump maxed out being held by Nick Khan with Abyss reading the show aloud. Let's just wait for more details, for fuck's sake. He don't want to go back there, does he? I don't know if he wants to go anywhere. I don't think he wants to go anywhere. (laughs) And and actually, nobody wants to receive him. So it's kind of like a mutual, please stay away. Um, If he was funny or witty or perceptive or had legitimate information to pass on or any combination of any of those things, he might be worth listening to. But he just pops up every once in a while, says some ridiculous shit, and then goes back in his his fat back hole wherever. Well, let's get away from the fat back hole and then let's go to a little more of whatever. Jim, did you see that Tony Khan recently made some comments? Several listeners have sent this in. Tony Khan made some comments about Vince McMahon and scripts. Did you see this? I have not I have not heard this nor seen this, so this will be fresh in my mind. During an interview with Forbes, Tony Khan had this to say. To be honest, when I hear about someone going in and they have a TV show on Monday that they rip up, my first thought is, what were you doing all weekend? Because I work my ass off on the weekends. <laughs> I have come in with a plan for Wednesday and Friday night, and I want to make sure Dynamite's great and Rampage. I don't do everything myself, but I do make the final decisions on everything. I put the format together. I put an outline of what the show is going to be for Dynamite and Rampage. I write it by hand. I don't understand why you're going to come in and rip up a show that you have a pretty good idea of what it is. And you should have approved it, where Monday we know what we're doing. And there's uh, Tony Khan's quote. 
Any thoughts on this? Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> I tried to match the frenetic nature that I figured he may have yes, had. Yes, yes. Well, he, you didn't, because he would have been bouncing off the wall and hopping up and down and patting his head and rubbing his stomach at the same time while he was saying all that. But it's always the porridge is too hot or too cold. It's never just right. They do work on weekends. If they were, I can tell you, whether it's Vince's writing team of me and Bruce or 25 comedy writers, they write all the time. They never stop writing, and Vince never stops changing his mind and tearing his shit up until it's actually out there live and on the tape. Whereas on the other hand, as we mentioned earlier in the program, Tony Khan knew who he was going to put the world title on two years before he did it, and even though it was a horrible idea when it came to pass, he did it anyway. He is the one who needs to tear some of these formats up and start over, and he won't do it. So over here, you got something that doesn't stop changing until it's actually done, and it's still not too good, and you got shit over on the other side that desperately needed changed, but it wasn't, so it ain't that good either. But uh, again, these people have told Tony that he knows what he's doing because they want their jobs and they want him to be happy and be their friend and they want their checks. Did I mention their money? And he believes them. And... <laughs> And there you go. And now he thinks he's got it handled. And this is just nothing. He's got it knocked out. I've either situation, either we got a rotten show on Monday and nobody stops it before we do it on Wednesday and says, hey, let's do this right. Or we've got 40 shows all weekend and we do the last one that anybody came up with. Neither one is is necessarily uh, uh, the best thing to do. I always had my shit in mind and I had my paperwork done in time to disseminate it at the tapings, but I neither changed it 25 times just to change it because I usually didn't have the staff to carry that off or I didn't fucking write it a week ahead of time and shit changed or I had other ideas and I just, oh, fuck it. I'll just do that. No reason to change anything. It's, <laughs> Considering the way you did things, do you admire the fact that he's writing out the show by hand? Well, who doesn't? I mean, I don't think if, if I don't care whether he's saying I'm writing it out by hand or I'm typing it by hand in whatever way that he's putting it on paper, the person who's responsible for it needs to put it on paper. Problem is, <laughs> it needs to make sense once it's down there. And and there needs to be some plan going forward. Like I said, he just he put a title on somebody after a two-year build that went in the toilet, but he brings other people in, talent that you could use on an ongoing basis, people that would freshen up his roster, and he brings in, beats them the first three or four times in to where they're meaningless, and then he signs them up. So it just it's all over the fucking place. And neither one of those approaches are optimal. Jim, this question was sent to corny drive through at gmail.com from Charlie in Starkville, Mississippi. I swear to God. Matt Hardy recently said Vince McMahon and Bray Wyatt had almost a father-son relationship. Hardy said, and here's a quote, 
When he liked Bray or loved him, he was all about him. But when he disliked him, oh my God, it was really bad, and he would punish him and insult him. To me, it was so strange. It was almost like a parent. What are your thoughts on Matt Hardy's take on the Wyatt-McMahon relationship? Well, I don't know. You know, I have yet to ever meet Bray Wyatt in person as a human being. Uh, don't know anything about him. I've obviously have met Vince numerous of times. But he seems to have changed, you know, as we've talked about in a number of ways over the past number of years. But I, he's had the, and you've heard some of the other guys talk about, oh, it's kind of a like a father-son or a mentor relationship. But he's had that with some guys, the top guys that made him money. He always tried to be tight with. Sometimes he succeeded. And sometimes they could never get on the same page, Ultimate Warrior. But I've, I didn't normally see in those days Vince working with a guy personally and insulting him or berating him. Maybe there was a little ribbage going on, but people were laughing. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, fucking. Because Bill Watts would do that. He'd call you a blithering idiot. He'd call his son Joel a blithering idiot. Or he would yell or he would, you know, make a blah, blah, blah. But he was trying to make a point like a football coach. But and now everybody's sensitive and everybody thinks, oh, gosh, you're John Laurinaitis said, you're not supposed to yell at them, Corny. You're supposed to empower them. I said, well, I ain't got time to empower because I'm doing this myself and yelling's quicker. But I never heard Vince just verbally eviscerating or bullying or tearing some guy apart in front of a bunch of the other guys, like if Matt Hardy was just standing around kibitzing or whatever. So I I don't know what to make about that. That's his observation. But maybe it was Vince, you know, because a lot of that fiend shit was just caca, just garbage. We've talked about it. The, you know, the burning alive and all that stuff. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Vince was not liking the fiend as opposed to not liking Bray Wyatt or whatever. Well, but let, anyway, let, me, let me just say and this. There, and Matt don't know the difference because Matt Hardy was teleporting himself on national television. So he doesn't know what's rotten wrestling and what's not anymore. Every single time we talk about this stuff with Bray Wyatt, we usually do get a few people that email us or get in touch via Twitter, and they'll say something along the lines of, he wasn't happy either. The stuff you're seeing, you're assuming it was all his. True. Vince and that team wanted to do that stuff maybe more than Wyndham Rotunda wanted to do the Bray Wyatt feeding stuff. So Maybe we, that indeed is true as well. I guess to the question... Did Vince typically run hot and cold on top stars like that? Oh, yeah. Vince runs hot and cold on everything. It, Not everything all at the same time, but there is nothing immune from Vince's hot hotness and coldness. He will... How many times has he given up on Lex Luger? Vader? Um, other, you know, even probably more glaring examples that I'm not thinking of where you just give up on something in the middle of it or just change direction or just a guy can go from the penthouse to the outhouse or, you know, he's decided to take a different approach to this issue or whatever. Vince does go hot and cold and, and get tired of things if they're not if they're not coming to fruition, materializing, shaping up like he thought they would, then he gets tired of it and goes on something else. He's not going to sit there and beat a dead horse. 
Again, Vince McMahon's a guy that used to plan a year ahead of time from WrestleMania to WrestleMania. Before I got there, Bruce used to tell me we would start that WrestleMania next March. Here it is, June, and work backwards. Well, Vince completely got off that, but now there's Tony Khan trying to do the same thing where he calls a, a champion two years in a row or two years ahead of time. But Vince would have changed his mind probably a dozen times, even in those days between June and March. And, you know, so ah. it, again, Vince is strange. He likes something until somebody points out something about it he doesn't like, and then he can't get that out of his head. Or he perceives something from somebody, or somebody does something or says something that just makes him get that fucking shit-sniffing face, and then he's, he's off of it. It's always been surprising to me how many guys, like even some of the ones you wouldn't suspect, like maybe the Ultimate Warrior, but how many guys would say like Vince was a father figure to them at various points? Yeah, and we've talked about that before. I, I'm Vince has had a friendship and or some level of affection for a lot of guys, but I don't think he would have ever said to any of the boys, you're just like Shane to me. Whereas that's what some of the guys, the impression they've gotten from their dealings with Vince. But as we know, Vince will fire somebody out of the family and say, well, it's business. What time are you going to be here for Christmas dinner, pal? Hope you get a new job. All right, Jim, our next question sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from James Lawson, Aniston, Alabama. Aniston, Alabama, baby. Where's that? You know where that is? Aniston, Alabama is uh, in the vicinity of Montgomery. It was part of the old uh, Bill Golden Montgomery territory there that was the 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 little small territory that in the early 70s guys in Memphis like Lawler and, you know, those guys used to get sent. Jimmy Golden, Dennis Condry worked there. It's the first time he worked on top. When guys were getting in the business, it was a little small territory and they would get experience doing television and working live events and whatever, but nobody made any money. Well, here's his question. My father taught high school history for over 40 years and always told me, what ifs don't exist in a vacuum? With that in mind, apologies for so many questions in this email. <laughs> All right, here we go. Do I need to take notes? You have mentioned you arrived in OVW in the summer of 1999. Vince Russo signed with WCW on October 3rd of 1999. Yes. If Russo had signed earlier, or if the OVW deal was still in the planning stages, would you have stayed on with creative? No. If you had, well, we'll let you expand in a second. <laughs> if you had, would you and Heyman have gotten along when he arrives after ECW is purchased? When Stephanie McMahon becomes head of creative, do you think you would have clashed with her like Heyman eventually would? Yes. And finally, would the wrestlers that came out of OVW, like Lesnar, Cena, Orton, and Batista, have been less successful with whatever would have been created in OVW's place? It's an interesting okay, series wait, wait, of what-ifs. Okay, well, that, that last what-if, I thought it was going in a different direction, but um, yes, if... 
Well, I mean, let's face it, and I'm not trying to be egotistical or obnoxious here, and Danny Davis was involved, and Rip Rogers was involved, Tom Pritchard was involved at various points. A lot of agents and, and veterans came down and you know lent their time to the guys in OVW. But no, if Brock and Orton and Batista and all those guys had been in any other training program that existed at that point in time, uh, instead of OVW, any other, anywhere that I can think of, no, they wouldn't have been as successful. They wouldn't have been trained as well. It would have been completely different because that's why we did that, because there was no place to send guys to train at that level to get a fully rounded education, television, live events, booking, promos, look, tights, <laughs> seminars on paying your taxes, the whole nine yards. It didn't exist anywhere else. Or and there wasn't anybody that had had the level of a success at the various things that we had done as myself and Rip and Danny. Um, going back to the start, no, if if Shitstein had left earlier, I still was. I saw my chance to leave Connecticut, and as a matter of fact, I liken it to this: Michael Cole and I did the pilot episode for SmackDown on the Fox network. That was in April of 99. And they shot the, uh, the show. And then we did the voiceovers in, in post at the studio. And they had me do it because at the time, since they only had raw national cable, that was Jr. and, and Lawler, Jr. and I, Michael Cole and I, Shane and I had done some of the syndication, the inner to Sunday night heat, etc. I was really the only other established color guy they had at the time that was a talent and I was in Connecticut. So Michael Cole's sitting there, we're taking a break and he says, now corny, if this show gets picked up and is a series in the fall, you won't be able to leave and go to Louisville in July. I said, watch my big fat white ass. He said, now you wouldn't stay to do this show on Fox. I said, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> Or wait, it wasn't on, was it on Fox or UPN then? It was UPN. UPN. Yeah. Sorry, tell a lie. If you wouldn't stay to do this show on UPN. I said, I wouldn't stay in Connecticut past July the 1st to give you fucking CPR if I just pulled you out of a pond, pal. Get all the use out of me you want before July 1st, I'll be in Louisville. It wasn't just about shit stain being there. I was tired of living there. We'd already gone through the things that I enjoyed doing the most. And for one reason, Kevin Dunn didn't want me doing color. And I'm surprised I got the SmackDown show. He didn't want me doing the show with Jim Ross because we were too Southern, like that's even a thing. And I wasn't managing. I was on the creative team dealing with shit stain. So that was a big part of it. But also living in Connecticut, I'd been gone too long, need to get back home. So no, I wouldn't have stayed if he'd had left earlier. Um, what was the other parts in there? By you and Paul Heyman potentially getting along, you and Stephanie Oh, yes, McMahon. and Stephanie. You know what? Honest to God, if they had said to me and Paul Heyman, we're going to let you two just do whatever the fuck that you two want to do, and nobody else will fuck with you. I believe we could have worked out wrestling show formats. I don't know... <laughs> That we would have ever 
been bosom buddies or found any more similarities between the two of us than we already know exist, but we could have, I respect Paul's and Paul wouldn't have tried to do the goddamn barbed wire kendo stick up the ass like he did in ECW and WWF. Cause he'd known there was only so far you could go there. And at the same time, we were both noted at various points for getting the most out of the resources we had to work with, whether it be talent, budget, or whatever. So I, I respected Paul's ability as a manager and his booking ability, if not his organizational capability or his, you know, truth-telling capabilities. So I think we could have probably been okay and done some decent shit as long as he didn't start bullshitting me when he didn't have to just to do it. Me and Stephanie, on the other hand, no, not a goddamn chance. Because I would have looked up, here's this girl that's just got out of college that doesn't know shit from apple butter about booking or what goes on in the locker room or whatever. And because she's got a college degree, she's going to bring a bunch of civilians in here and they're going to write wrestling and tell us what to do. Fuck that. That would have been goddamn... It was bad enough taking it from shit stain and at least he was a grown adult man the same age as i was who had for better or worse watched wrestling for a number of years and at least had worked for the magazine for a few years stephanie's job was an intern at the tv studio and i'm sure they really put her through her paces so I've never had any problem with Stephanie. She's nice, nice enough young lady to deal with on the level that I dealt with her and the amount of times I dealt with her. But if she was the head of the writing team and I was on it, fucking hell, that wouldn't last two weeks. I, ca I cannot have the same. I don't go into goddamn dentist office and tell him how to do the root canal. I don't take my car in for service and tell the mechanic what to do with the motor. And I'll be goddamned if somebody a third of my age with a 25th of my experience in the wrestling business would be instructing me on how to book wrestling. So that wouldn't have worked. When you went to OVW and when you finally started appearing on TV as a commentator, it was the first time wrestling fans ever saw a serious Jim Cornette. Yes. You toned down the colors. Yeah. You weren't being funny so much every now and then. I'd slip in, I'd slip in the phrases, you know, but not just boom, 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 like I'm doing stand-up. And it was you and Dean Hill. And it was one of the few times we had a break from the heel announcer or the wrestling commentator who was a former wrestler who's trying something different. Right. What was your thought process going into the OVW commentating? I mean, putting yourself there is very similar to Bill Watts being there, and Dean Hill's very much like Boyd yeah. here sometimes, where he gets yeah. as much in. Yeah. But what were your thoughts on doing that and not having a heel commentator? Well, Dean was there specifically because the people loved him, and he was a local fixture around wrestling. He, When he was a Louisville police officer, he was a security guard at the Tuesday night matches at the Gardens for years and years. Then he became the ring announcer there. Then when he retired from the police department, was about the time that Danny Davis was starting OVW, and about the time also that the Memphis Territory was 
you know, folding up and pulling out of Louisville. So Danny had known Dean forever, and Danny asked Dean to come and do his program. Dean's not even his first career nor his second career was a television broadcaster. And Dean was, and I think would admit this, was not your typical smooth television broadcaster, but he had a good voice. He not a, he plays in a band, he's musical, he you know, he's he's just a great guy. And the the fans here in Louisville liked him and trusted him and knew he wasn't full of shit and he wasn't going to lie to them and tell them a bunch of caca. So you want that in your announcer. So uh, he could be Boyd Pierce because the people love Boyd Pierce. Dean did not have to call the matches. I did. He didn't have to fucking uh, referee the fights amongst the, the talent. I did. But he was there to not only let me breathe and do the fills and do some ring announcing, but also because it was a local flavor to the program of a guy that everybody that was watching or everybody that came to our live events had been seeing and it liked in person for 20 years. Um, there was also, I didn't want a heel announcer because every other wrestling program in the country had a heel announcer. And what I was trying to do was the only serious pro wrestling television program on the air in the United States at that time. And I succeeded. Uh, we had a, and I was the announcer. I didn't have the wild colors on. I wasn't being a heel. I wasn't being an asshole because I was the local native Louisvillian that had gone out and had a spectacular wrestling career on national TV and blah, blah, blah. And now I've come back to be the matchmaker for this local organization that is going to bring you folks the widest variety of talent you've ever seen in Louisville with the up-and-coming tomorrow's superstars today, as well as some of the biggest names in wrestling through my contacts will be brought here. And I am the voice and the face of the promotion as the play-by-play -play announcer. I'm going to be straight, and I'm going to be honest about it. I'm not going to favor the heels, but I'm not going to, at the same time, you know, do the Ed Whalen thing for the baby face. I'm going to be credible and straight and logical. And I'm an announcer, the lead announcer of a sports program. And that's why it was a sports program. There was no sports entertainment. It was an entertaining sport. So I wanted announcers that the people believed that were straight men for the wild and wacky talent but that also could impart all the information the people needed to know and would be trusted. And nobody ever put their hands on Dean Hill, and maybe once every year and a half, one of the heels would go crazy and punch me or body slam me, which would lead to me potentially being a corner in a corner against the manager or whatever the case. And otherwise than that, the announcers played it straight. And that was why that OVW as a television program was different than every other wrestling program on television in the country at that point. And even, and this is before he lost complete control of his faculties, but even with the modern style spot monkey attitude bullshit going on, even Uncle Dave and his minions had to acknowledge that that television program was the best booked wrestling television program in the country at the time. I think they were talking about 2003, 2004. It was the only one that made sense. 
It didn't insult anybody's intelligence. It got the most out of the talent and got people over instead of under where they were more important after they'd been on the television than they were when you first saw them. So that was the the thought process behind, I wasn't doing a wrestling sports entertainment program. I was doing a regional sports television program. Could have been football, baseball, whatever. It just happened to be wrestling. Well, Jim, let's get another question here. This one sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com from Eric. As I'm writing this email, the daily Google Doodle is honoring Indian wrestler the Great Gama. Wait, what? Back it up. The what is honoring? The daily Google Doodle. Is that like J. Jonah Jameson and the Daily Bugle? What the hell is the Daily Google Boogle? If you go to google.com, there's no, nothing there today. But some, I, some days there is a doodle, and there's nothing there today. Some days there's a doodle, yeah. and other days there's a noodle. Well, before this chair squeaks a little more. Every but, once in a while, a poodle. On the day Eric sent this email. you're fucking this dog. I'm just holding it. I'm head. trying to. Well, I'm not trying to fuck this dog. I'm trying to do this show. I'm trying to fuck this dog. Here's Eric's question. But there was a Google Doodle, which goes out to the entire world. That's a lot of people, Jim. That's a, that's a ton of them. Honoring Indian wrestler, the great Gama. I only have the information in the brief Google write-up but it appears he was undefeated for over 50 years <laughs> with wins over Stanislaus Zabisco and Ben Roller. As I'm now intrigued by the career that's, of the that's great... Dr. Benjamin Roller to you there, you whippersnapper. Well, it's Eric there. As I am now intrigued by the career of the great Gamma, I would like to know if you two have any more information available about this unsung legend active in the time of Gotch and Hackenschmidt. Good Lord. And... It... <laughs> Is there even a Wikipedia on the Great Gamma? And, and oh, of course. Are, well, are they say, well, I didn't know whether people got that deep or not. And are they saying his career lasted 50 years and, and did it? Did he start when he was 18 and wrestle when he was 70 or whatever? Uh, according to this, in 1895, again, according to Wikipedia, I don't know if this is uh, J. Michael Kenyon over here working on yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't trust everything. In 1895, at the age of 17... Gama challenged then-Indian wrestling champion, middle-aged Rahim Bakish Sultani Walla, another ethnic Kashmiri wrestler from, well, it has where he's from. So that's challenging him at 17 years of age in 1895. And... 50 years later would have been 1947. I know it was India, but he wasn't on a lot of the radar. Well, it says here that he wrestled in 1929. It doesn't have anything here about what he did between 29 and 47, which was when the the partition of India took place. And then he moved to Pakistan. (laughs) Well, here's the... Here's what it says, but but let me read this. This is what it says here. All right. Gama fought and won over 5,000 matches. Bruce Lee was an avid follower of Gama's training routine. (laughs) <laughs> Lee read articles about Gama and how he employed his exercises to build his legendary strength for wrestling, and Lee quickly incorporated them into his own routine. Well, is that actually where the phrase Hindu squats came from? Uh, the training routines Lee used included the cat stretch and the squat, although it doesn't say Hindu squat, but it does say squat. Well, see, that, I mean, you've heard, I mean, football players and teams in college, what, it, it, Hindu squats. That right. was kind of the, you know, 
from the old days, the old training methods. And on the day that Google put something up, this is what they wrote, which would have been the 144th, 44th, the 144th birth. I can't say this word for some reason. It would have been birth. It would be. <laughs> How old would he have been, Brian? He would have been. It would have been his 144th birthday. Something you never say. And what Google wrote was Gama's legacy continues to inspire modern day fighters. Even Bruce Lee is a noted admirer. Well, he's dead, Bruce Lee. And incorporates aspects of Gamma's conditioning into his own training routine. Once again, Bruce Lee is dead. Okay, uh, real briefly, obviously we don't know chapter and verse on the great Gamma. He might be a great subject for Tim Hornbaker to write a, a book about one of these days. But obviously, in pro wrestling, the name has been around for well over 100 years, as they just said. Great Gamma was the first major Indian wrestling star of the 20th century. And during the days of Gotch and Hackenschmidt and the early days of Stecker and et cetera, the 19 teens, you know, they made money with him. What the, the, the Indian or Hindu or, you know, foreign menace in that genre was a big deal in wrestling in the days before television, Alibaba, the Turk, and also, you know, that's why the Indian matches, they always, the commentators always said, well, the Hindus wrestled in mud. Because, yeah, they did. They wrestled in a, on a dirt surface, and if it rained, it became mud. Because uh, they didn't use rings back in those days over there. And he was a physical specimen, and he made a lot of money on a number of tours in the United States. But the reason why he's not mentioned here in the same breath with uh, the historians with Gotch and Hackenschmidt and Stecker and Strangler Lewis and all those guys is because he never, he wasn't here constantly, he never had a long, unobstructed run. They didn't put the world title on him over here because he was a, you know, a, some other country's superstar. And just like Londos drew, you know, those crowds of over 100,000 in the stadiums in Greece after he had become the champion over here and gotten a lot of news and then went back home. Gama, beforehand he was a star, but after he got notoriety here in the States and had had those matches with Gotch or whatever, they went back and they drew huge crowds. Well, like Great Kali, same thing. And now they're trying to do it with Zippy the Singy Pinhead or whatever. Uh, people in that part of the country like their wrestlers, or like that part of the world, I should say, like their wrestlers, and he was the, the, the top guy. Was he any good? Who the fuck knows, right? And there's no footage, is there? So it's just all uh, rumors and uh, legend. And whatever footage there is of Greg Gama or any wrestler from that time period, it's hard to really tell what's good and what isn't. Yeah, because you know, it's just intermittent clips of yeah. just nothing. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, obviously, this is during that time where the business was filled with legitimate shooters. You know, you started seeing some gimmicks here and there, but were any of his matches at all work? Oh, I'm sure they will. Any, any match he had for the world championship or any top level guy in the United States had to be a work. They weren't going to fucking do that. Why would they bring some fucking Yahoo from India that nobody had ever heard of, push him, and let him shoot with the people that are already drawing him money? Right? 
but over there, who knows? And maybe, maybe they had shoots. Maybe people every once in a while acted up. I'm sure he was legitimate, but also I would think that they worked a lot of their shit too. But over here, if if the great Gama wrestled Frank Gotch, chances are it was a fucking work. Well, I want to apologize to the family of the great Gama if they are listening. Of course, he was a wrestling legend, and some of us honor his legacy. And if you are feeling disrespected, put down, disparaged, whatever it may be, whatever insult your family feels, may I suggest perhaps litigation may be the answer. Well, now let's just hold on here a second. Are there grounds for litigation just because I have maligned the man's wrestling skills. Let's just examine this for a second. I'm going to go to the website of the most preeminent attorney that I'm aware of to determine whether or not that he would be able to take the great Gama's case. And Brian, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Call Stephen P. Show or two. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen P. New at 888-692-8084, newlawoffice.com. Of course, his, his lovely and talented partner, Amanda Taylor, is involved as well, but their areas of practice, if you go to that fine website, you'll see they handle personal injury. And we're not only talking about personal injury, we're talking about motor vehicle collisions, commercial vehicle collisions, drunk driving collisions. They handle that, but that doesn't have anything to do with the great gamma. Sexual assault. We're talking by the clergy, by people at hospitals, by people at schools. But that doesn't take into account anything about the great gamma or what we were talking What about wrongful death? Death from medical malpractice, death from workplace injury. Stephen P. New and the folks at newlawoffice.com, 888-6928-8084, are experts at that. What about employment and or wrongful termination? If you get sacked, given your walking papers, a pink slip, the boot, and it's against the rules of Hoyle, if you're wrongfully terminated for any of the reasons that are mentioned on their employment information page here at newlawoffice.com, you can sue. And they also cover workplace injury, which the folks at AEW need to pay attention to that because they're always getting injured in their workplace. But I don't know if he would have been able to represent the great gamma. But you know what? There's also the philanthropy of Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. We've talked about him being a an accomplished philanderer, one of the that's finest not philanderers. What we said. No, that's not it. I'm sorry, philatelists. Or <laughs> that's your other favorite word. No, wait, it's it's <laughs> philander, philander, philate the philanthropy. Filet of fish. And the filet of fish over there in West Virginia, they bought kids bicycle helmets. They've gotten scholarships for students at Marshall University. They've done done humanitarian things for community food banks and the the people who don't have enough to eat, they support the arts in West Virginia and local sports so they can represent you in court. 
And then they can give you a boost in your private activities because they're part of the community and they're part of the cult of Cornette. Newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. If you need to sue, call Stephen P. New. That's right. A great man. Some would call him the really good gamma. But let's uh, get a few more questions before we wrap things up here, Jim. Oh, mama. Jim, this oh, one. Oh, mama, that's a good gamma. This one was sent to Courtney Drive through gmail.com from Ian in Jensen Beach, Florida. Hi, Jim. I often hear you speak of guys such as MJF and FTR of being tape watchers. Obviously, that entails observing footage featuring the greats of yesteryear. But my question is. What makes for a good tape watcher? Obviously, the boys of today will borrow a spot or two from the past, but how would a wrestler of today make the most of tape watching? Let's say my 36-year-old, 5'9", 215-pound fat ass oh God. wants to begin a career in the business. And after getting into reasonable shape, I start watching tape. What, <laughs> what does a good tape watcher look for? Have there been any instances of tape watchers observing a shitty worker or match to see what not to do? (laughs) Or does tape watching focus exclusively on studying the how-tos as opposed to the how-nots of the business? Thank you for your time, and please give Harley Quinn a treat and belly rub. I will do that. Um... Here's the thing. I'm sure some people watch some things for how not to do something. The majority of the time you're watching for how to do something, but it's not just I've that's the that was the problem with with Jericho in uh, Smoky Mountain was watching Japanese tapes and trying to do the moves. And and that was out of place. He needed to be watching old continental wrestling to learn how to work the people. Lance Storm picked up on it before Jericho did. Because Lance ended up saying that what he learned there was how not to have the match that he wanted, but how to have the match the people wanted, the fans wanted. If you're just watching tapes and stealing cool moves, it 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 goes deeper than that. Sometimes you watch, and I've advised guys in OVW and Ring of Honor to watch different people for different things and to watch out for different things. Sometimes you watch a great match. I tell the whoever's watching it, watch the fans and watch what they react to and watch when they come in. And then you go back and you look at what the babyface did to elicit that response. The body language is Lawler might be starting to bow up on his comeback before he drops the strap, but he gives little signals and the people slowly pick up on it. Or the way that somebody is selling right before they hit a tag to make a comeback or whatever. A lot of times you'll watch tape just specifically because one guy does something so perfectly. And I'm not talking about a move again necessarily, but I'm talking watch this guy take this turnbuckle. That's it, the perfect way. Watch this guy's footwork. Watch the way this guy pushes off the ropes to do whatever. You can break it down to that minute. You can say, watch this match. This is a 25-minute Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat match, and it's an excellent example of storytelling and emotion and heat and comeback or whatever. Or you can say, watch this match with, you know, this guy. It's a TV squash match, but the 
two or three little things that this guy does, nobody does it anymore in the business. So you're watching for different things. You're not just watching to steal moves. You're watching to see how the guy that does that particular thing pretty much better than everybody else in the business, where his feet are and where his hands are and how he poises to do this thing, or you break it down, throwing a punch, throwing a kick, the, the simple things, but you break it down because there's different ways to do that. And, and a lot of guys had different, because they're built differently, had different ways of moving, different styles. They would do things a different way. So you'd show a guy, look, here's Dick Murdoch's punch, Bobby Eaton's punch, Jerry Lawler's punch, Terry Funk's punch. They all look good. They're all done a completely different way. Which fits you best? Try them all and see which one works out best for you. We tried to find a lot of Don Leo Jonathan at first for Matt Morgan to watch a big athletic guy, but then we found that Don Leo Jonathan was six inches shorter than Matt Morgan, but he was a lot more agile when it came to, you know, flipping around. So we said, steal, steal some of those things, but don't try to steal everything because it doesn't fit you. So that, that, you know, you can't just watch matches, Japanese matches as steal cool moves and just and the only thing you retain from it is oh okay we're going to i'm going to give the guy a backdrop and my partner's going to come off the top rope and catch him in the balls with a flying headbutt and not sit there and okay now we got to watch this thing 45 fucking times on slow motion and frame by frame to make sure that we're as prepared as possible to try to do something this complicated and that's what i used to do with a lot of the midnight express's stuff the double team moves is I would watch matches they were having, seeing the individual things that they did, and then trying to figure out a way to put it together in a double team. Which is why, the, since Bobby did a great leg drop, well, maybe Stan or Dennis would pick him up in an atomic drop and drop him his leg first across the guy's throat, and it's a double team, but Bobby's doing all the work, or whatever the case. Does that is that any kind of an explanation? You got to watch tape, but you don't watch it for entertainment and just to steal a snazzy move. You watch it like the New York Mets will watch game footage and try to slow down and analyze the home run hitters swing so everybody can do it like that. What wrestlers, if any, impressed you in OVW embracing this? You know, doing it when they didn't have to, coming to you with questions or notes. Anyone? Oh, God. Um... Yeah, but most of the guys, I mean, everybody was always asking something or taking notes or wanting when I would give out, you know, more of the books or the history things on paper or, you know, Danny Davis had tons of different VHS tapes back when that was the thing. You could, here's old Mid-Atlantic or here's old Ric Flair or here's old somebody or whatever, just different genres. But I mean, guys were asking all the time. We wanted them to. Um, but uh, so I hate to single anybody. At Mondo, Mike Mondo was an excellent student. He questioned everything, and that's why his Twitter account is now better than any wrestling school in the country. Uh, but uh, uh, the guys who were motivated, you had the Carlitos that came in that, you know, son of the star, and they were just biding their time till they go to the main roster. They're not supposed to be in developmental. 
and they didn't ask many questions, but the guys that were especially starting from scratch, Mark Henry was a sponge with shit because he enjoyed the the history and hearing about these personalities. And as one of Mark was interested because Terry Todd, who was a, a not only a strong man and weightlifter in his day, but also a trainer and uh, was huge in the strength world, was from Texas. And Mark had known him, but he didn't necessarily know that Terry Todd had a background with other pro wrestlers going back 40 years. He's showing the pictures of the magazines. He loved that shit. So it just, you know, you try to also, you don't want to be telling when the big show was here, we're not going to show him tiger mask tapes. Yeah. Work on that fucking drop kick off the top, you know, but, but you would, you would explain the rules of thumb for a giant working like a big man, how to register, how to sell, when to ever go down, when not to, Here's the way other guys did it. Watch Andre, watch fucking stud, watch whoever's been, you know, a giant in the past or whatever, and then try to make shit your own. When it comes to the big four that people think of with OVW, Cena, Orton, Lesnar, and Batista, did they embrace it? I can't see Brock Lesnar really not blowing Eh, this off, but like Randy Orton, who was young and may have had a different attitude then than he has now and also grew up around the business. Well, Orton didn't mind watching wrestling tapes because, goddamn, his dad was probably in some of them, <laughs> you know, and 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 that's why he grew up watching wrestling tapes. Yeah, I don't know that he was necessarily, you know, the fucking greatest student in the world with making notes and doing homework and paperwork and et cetera, but he didn't mind watching wrestling tapes. But Cena was the, of those four, Cena was the best student. He Orton may have seen a lot of that. Orton probably knew half the guys we were showing him tape of through his dad from meeting him when he was a kid or whatever. Um, but Cena from going from scratch and not having a background in the business was the best student at watching different tapes, retaining information, making notes, studying, whatever. Go ahead. So the gimmick that Batista had in OVW, Leviathan. Yes. What tapes would you have given him to help him? Because at that time you didn't know how WWE was going to, Oh, okay. No, well, I mean, he watched, we, we gave all the guys tapes of everything to watch because you can pick up, you know, something from anything, but there was really nobody like Leviathan before. That's why I wanted to do something different. And I've, I've, I'm not going to try to go into a long story and I've told it before, but I'm looking at what I got. He's already past 30. He's injury prone. He was here for six weeks and he tore a bicep, was out for three months with surgery. He'd had extremely limited training before he came here. Uh, They ran him off from the power plant, and the Samoans had taught him how to write a check. I've got a short window of time. He's got to be a gimmick. He's not going to be starting in the preliminaries. He's not going to be out there doing promos like a normal human being. Look at the fucking tattoos and look at the look of him. Let's go with that, and let's build an opponent for Undertaker, Big Show, Kane, the monster movie crew, and let's see if we can get five years out of this fucking guy. He didn't know anything about wrestling on the inside. He had watched it on TV before, but he had limited knowledge even of that and the way that things worked. He was he was not a fireball personality nor a go-getter. He sat over in a corner, minded his own business, and waited to be told what to do with his hoodie on because he was always cold. He was a very cold demon. 
And that was the, I, when I booked him with Kane, I set him in front of Glenn. I said, Glenn has come in here to do the same thing for you that Undertaker came into Knoxville to do for him. So tell him what you do. Oh, I'll do anything. No, tell him what you do. <laughs> and I'd sit there, but I had to make him more assertive, tell him you got a great spear and you got the full Nelson slam. Leviathan at 6'6", six, six or whatever he was, he was easily 330 in those days because he was roided to the gills. All the tattoos, the chain around his neck, the brief tights and that body, he had like five moves. He could do a great spear, and he could do a great full Nelson slam, and he could fucking look like a movie monster. And we built everything around that, and he didn't really need to learn how to do drop kicks off the top rope because he wasn't going to be doing those to begin with. But what we tried to do was teach him how to mentally and psychologically get over in his matches, how to be dominant physically, how to be an invulnerable monster, how then to, when he's a babyface, sell through nefarious tactics, but not sell like just a fucking junior heavyweight like Ricky Morton. Keep the matches quick. He almost never loses, and when he does, it's major controversy. That kind of guy gets over. And Leviathan, for the time he was here in OVW, was, I won't say he was the most beloved or the most popular. That would be a guy like Dinsmore or, you know, one of the good-looking kids like Jeter or whatever, but he was the most over talent we ever had because he ne he was never beaten. Until the end, when it was time for him to move on, he always won one way or the other. He sold nothing. And he got over as a heel to the point where the people started cheering for him, and we switched him babyface. It was the perfect example of how to create a movie monster gimmick and take a guy who's limited not only in terms of his talent, but in terms of the window of opportunity he has for being in this business and smashing him over, and the people fucking loved him. And then they took him up there and made him Devon's fucking flunky and carrying a box around his neck and covered up his body. And that didn't work. And he was about to be fired and started working out with Triple H, and they said, hey, why don't we cover uncover the body? They made him a normal human, but they put him in their group where they could hide him, and he could do all the shit that he had learned how to do as an unstoppable, invulnerable monster who sold nothing and had tremendous athleticism for a guy that size. Jim, this, our final question from listeners this week, sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Joe Musolf in Minneapolis. I think it's Musolf. Okay, I will bow to you on this. Would the landscape of pro wrestling be different if Vern Gagne took Vince Jr.'s offer and sold the AWA. Well, that is interesting. But what year was that offer made? The offer was made in, 19, in the summer of 1983. That's why it was, it was, it was in the summer of 83, right before, because then Vince saw Ho Hogan in Japan right after that, right? Personally. He went over after that, and of course they already knew Hogan a little bit, but yeah, well, I mean, it's not like they had met for the first time. But on time the back there, of Hogan, you bring up Hogan and you talk about Japan, the AWA at this point when Vince went to see them, Vince's business was on fire. 
But the AWA was having their record year. They were in yeah. the middle of the biggest year of their company. And that's what I'm saying. Vince's thought was, well, will will Vern sell to me? And then I'd have everything. But when he didn't sell, then Vince said, hmm, well, there may be more than one way to do this because the AWA was on fire. And that was the first year of Hulkamania. Uh, Vince didn't create that phenomenon. Hulk Hogan was drawing huge crowds for the couple years before that, coming off a of Rocky Three and blah, blah, blah. So what else? But Vince ended up with pretty much everything there was of interest in the AWA eventually. Hulk Hogan, Gene Okerlund, uh, fucking David Schultz, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Ken Resnick. But I was about to say Resnick. Patera <laughs> ended up there. You know, so would it have made any appreciable difference if he'd have bought the AWA? Would it have made any appreciable difference in in the WWF's business if he'd have bought the AWA in the summer of 83? Or would it have just deprived the folks in the Midwest of their major league home territory that they had for another three years at that point before things really just four years at that point before things just went to complete shit. He I, don't think, I don't think it would have done anything better for Vince. Cause he got what he wanted anyway, in the long run, the ability to run those towns, TV and all those markets, Hulk Hogan and the other talent. I think it would have probably, because he wouldn't have run the AWA as a separate entity. So it would have just robbed all the people in, Minnesota and Chicago and Colorado and the Midwest and all of that of the last four years of their own territory. It is interesting because we got to see who he took and not everyone who he wanted always went. I mean, Jerry Blackwell backed out of the first TV taping in 1984. Yeah. But if he had purchased the AWA, it would have been something to see what he did with like Greg Gagne. Does he keep Jim Brunzel and Greg Gagne together because they have a history in the Midwest? You know, things like that would have been it. Jerry Blackwell would have been incorporated. I think at that point, he would have kept Brunzel because Brunzel, you know, was athletic and, and had a physique. Uh, I, he would have either tried to get Greg in the office or he would have bid Greg adieu because I don't see, especially back then and with the other people on the roster, I don't see Vince. You know, I mean, Greg now, if you look at it with today's eyes, he what he was six two, six three, and weighed two hundred pounds. He'd be, he'd look like Andre next to the guys today. But back then, no, Vince would have never pushed anybody hit Greg's size to any appreciable level. If Vince Jr. does buy the AWA or put together the deal in the summer of '83, and Vern goes along with it, do you put the AWA belt on Hogan and build towards the AWA champion beating the WWF champion? Or do you have Hogan go over either the Iron Sheik in January or another heel like Koloff or the Mass Superstar between that point in January and then wrestle Nick Bockwinkle, the AWA champion? What would you do? Well, what I would do would be different than what Vince would. Do you think that Vince, if he had bought the company, would actually operate it as another entity and have some kind of rivalry with his WWF roster? Is that what, is that where you're going? That's not where I'm going, but I do think that if Vince bought the company, he wouldn't just have the AWA World Championship. At that time, he wouldn't have just had the World Championship go away. He wanted Harley Race, so Harley Race would lose to his World Champion. Yes. But yeah, but that's what I'm saying. That's what he I'm saying. Would've... He would have wanted the AWA champion to lose to his world champion, and then that's the end of the AWA. 
My question is, how does he get I, to that I point? think the end of the AWA would have happened beforehand. I think if he'd have bought the AWA, there would have been a drop-dead date where they had produced their last television program. Oh, I agree with you. And, I'm, I'm talking about in terms of facing the well, public. No, the listen to me. Listen to facing the public. I'm saying within a few weeks after the ink was dry on that contract, Vince would pop up, the WWF television program would pop up in front of the people everywhere on every station that the AWA television program had been airing on. And Vince would do the same thing he did when he went on TV in Georgia. Same thing he did when he went on TV in the last Monday Nitro. Same, whatever he, whenever he's done that, folks, you're going to see the best wrestling in the world. And guess what? The AWA champion Hulk Hogan is going to face the fucking WWF champion, and we're going to have a unification or whatever. The, well, Hogan wasn't the champion then. So I think what he would have done. That's why I was saying that. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's why I think what he would have done was whoever the AWA champion was that summer of 83. Was it Bockwinkle? It was Bockwinkle. He would have had Bockwinkle do a job to whoever his champion was at that time, which was still Backland. That's right. Uh, because Bockwinkle was a heel, Backland was a babyface. That would have worked. And then he would have done the same thing he was going to do because he wouldn't have put the belt on Hogan off of Backlund because that would be a baby face beating a baby face. But there's, there's no way that would have been a long-running issue. It would have been, I'm buying this company. Within the next few weeks, my TV will replace the AWTV, AWA TV everywhere. And I'm going to have Bockwinkle uh, doing interviews where he talks about this big upcoming Super Bowl unification match with Bob Backlund, and Bob Backlund's going to win it. And that would have been the end of that. Because Vince McMahon had WrestleMania and expansion in his mind. He wanted the TV markets. He wanted the contracts with the big buildings in Chicago and Minnesota and all the ones that, that Vern had. He wanted competition in those areas out of the way, and he wanted to add all of the stars that he wanted to keep from Vern's company and if he'd have bought the thing and all those guys would have they would have been available obviously to continue to work for Vince so he could just fire the ones he didn't want and he's already got the ones that he did want and there were no contracts back in those days so he could give guys two weeks notice there you go you're done hey Hogan come here I got something for you and that would have been the end of it there was no contracts to fucking mess with and no deals that to, made with the boys that would have stood up anywhere another interesting thing to look at would be how would this have changed the trajectory of the road warriors because if they don't have the awa to go to after they leave georgia and again they went to the awa after hogan left yeah it would have changed a lot of things for them i would think too because they'd be really they really became the road warriors in the awa yeah they they were already hot on Georgia TV. I mean, just almost instantly, just because of the newness and freshness of it, and they were smashing everybody. But it wasn't until they went to work for Vern and and Paul Ellering was from Minnesota, and he knew the dream, even though he was with him in Georgia. now he's 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 home. he's he's the experienced veteran. They've got a promotion up there that's really behind them where they only have to work. Vern's schedule, instead of in Georgia where they were working six, seven nights a week, they can back up a little bit. They went 15, 18 days a month, and they can start learning. And they're working, instead of just smashing job guys on TV, they're in the houses with big-time experienced pros. And so that's where they really got their shit together. If there was no place 
And they replaced Hogan as the, the big draw for a while there for Vern. If that didn't exist, would they, they would have probably gone to the Carolinas, maybe from Georgia, but they had so much more talent and used so many more guys on their cards. Would they have had the time they had in the AWA to really get their shit together? Very interesting. What ifs are always fun, but Jim, before we wrap things up, a few rapid fire Gordon Soli trivia questions for you. Very good. What wrestler with the same surname as a former world heavyweight boxing champion is called Thunderbolt? Patterson, Floyd, and Claude. Name the show once hosted by Rowdy Roddy Piper. Well, Piper's Pit. Does that qualify as a That is an answer. That is show. correct. A beneficial interv- interview segment. A beneficial trait of wrestlers is pugnacity. What true or false? True or false? That that is true. Pug. If you're very pugnacious, you don't like to back down or give up. Which wrestler reportedly drank 126 bottles of beer in a four-hour period? Andre the Giant or Tommy Rich? <laughs> that is correct and correct. True or false? Pack songs given name. Is lie through brute. That is false. That is a deep false. That is false. <laughs> Who defeated Buddy Rogers to win the NWA World Heavyweight title on January 24th, 1963? In Toronto, Luthez. Did Luthez, I mean, I guess Hornbaker talked about it. Did Luthez really say we could do this the easy way or the hard way? What do you think? Well, the, now that there's speculation, um, did he or didn't he? But I'm I'm pretty sure that's that's something Lou would have said, and he's stealing it from his mentor and idol strangler Lewis. So if he didn't say it that night, he said it a time or two. Name the former Tonight Show host who early in his career did some wrestling announcing. Steve Allen. That is correct. Who did he do announcing for? Um. It, well, it wasn't a particular territory because it that been was a town. Yeah, it would have. It would have. He was in. Uh, God damn it! Where did he start? Was it Pennsylvania, Ohio, where Steve Allen started in television? I can't remember now. Huh, I got to see what we can find out about that. Yeah, who won the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in 1914? <laughs> what? Nobody. Charlie Cutler. No, wait a minute. <laughs> Okay, all right. Well, 19 I was thinking of Gotch's retirement as 1915, but he died in 1915. He retired in 1913. Cutler was the next champion, right? But it was not the called the NWA title at the time, but the NWA later on claimed their lineage back to that that point. Jim named the hold where the victim's head is pile-drived into the canvas. Uh, that would be the pile driver, Gordon. That is correct. Which former University of Tennessee football star, now a wrestler, has set 19 world weightlifting records? Doug Furness. That is correct. Superstar Billy Graham is the son of the late wrestling legend Eddie Graham. True or false? False. (laughs) Who played the part of Mike Bullard in the 1974 movie The Wrestler? Vern Gagne. That is correct. True or false, no masked wrestler has ever won the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. That is false. It says true, but that's a trick question because winning yeah. the title and having 
the association honor the victory because you won't unmask two different things. Yes, and that was that they did it with the Midnight Rider, Dusty in Florida, right? He won the match, but to be NWA world champion, you could not be a masked wrestler. The NWA had to know your name. He wouldn't unmask because then he would be banished from the state of Florida because of the previous agreement with the heel that fucked him around. So he, in a masterful genius stroke of getting yourself over, he uh, decided, well, no, it's more important to me to stay here in Florida and get even for my people. So I give this belt back. What was the most popular mode of travel from city to city for wrestlers in the 1930s? Car or train? It says here train. True. There weren't there weren't a lot of planes. True or false? The right of a wrestler to don a mask forfeits his right to have his weight revealed. That that's complete gibberish. <laughs> that's false. <laughs> Which famous general reportedly stated to Robert E. Lee, "Pay no attention to things, Bob. Me and some of the boys were having a wrestling match here last night." That was Ulysses S. Grant. That's right. How did you know that? Because who was the fucking babyface to fucking Lee's heel? Grant. I didn't realize they were talking about wrestling there. Well, which U.S. president had a cauliflower ear? Well, I mean in the Civil War. That's right. Which U.S. president had a cauliflower ear from his days as a wrestler? Oh, God damn it. Uh, Was that? Shit. I don't don't think too hard because I don't know if this is accurate. It Uh, It says Abraham Lincoln. Okay, no, I was thinking that, well, it may have been from boxing, but I was thinking one of the late 1800s, early 1900s presidents may have fit that category, but possibly not. But I I don't think Abraham Lincoln had a cauliflower ear. Which wrestler held the NWA World Heavyweight title a total of five times in his career? Well, now this, this game was done in 1987. So at that point, it was Harley Race, and that was the record. It says here, Ed Strangler Lewis. Wait a minute. I don't understand. Oh, wait. Lewis. Lewis did hold it five, and Harley won it six, and that was the record, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, I guess that's how you differentiate the two. Yeah. There. Yeah. That's what it was. So, so at that point, both Lewis and... Harley had had it five times and Harley then got it the sixth. And that was before, but wait, how many times does have it? If he, we're going he had it six back, times, didn't he? Yeah. So, and then Harley waited and then Harley got it to seventh. <laughs> so what the fuck? Jim, which ancient. So actually, but when, see, it's a 35 year old game. So we're trying to remember the time that it was written, but yes, Lewis had it five. Thez had it six, Harley had it seven. And Flair was not remotely close to that at that point of time in the mid-80s. Which ancient Egyptian pharaoh was reportedly an avid wrestling fan? Uh, that would have been um, uh, King Tutoff the Dresser. It's King Tut, in fact. Tutoff in- the Dresser, Tutoff the Mirror, <laughs> Key Bump, whatever. In what year did Luthez win his first NWA World Heavyweight title? 1937 by the standards of the lineage. Which wrestler has played the part of Bigfoot on at least one occasion on TV? Andre. Was that a big deal? 
when you were that was a huge deal oh boy are you kidding i was there in front of the tele because i always watch six million dollar man every week anyway but when the publicity came out that andre the giant would be playing bigfoot and in tv guide and everything i was sitting there 30 minutes early and boy you got goosebumps when you saw andre the giant under that bigfoot outfit that was a big deal I just saw there's an action figure of that. I got to get it for my Andre the Giant collection. And I mean, every wrestling fan in the country watched that show that night. Jim, true or false, before the advent of the ring bell, timekeepers cracked a bullwhip to denote the end of the match. (laughs) No, actually, they cracked a chicken egg. That is indeed false. False, yes. Blank Paul Ellering. (laughs) <laughs> Fuck Paul Ellering. No. <laughs> Precious Paul Ellering. That's right. Who is the senior editor of the renowned Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine? <laughs> Wonderful Willie Apner, baby. That is right. Skip Young is better known by what nickname whose initials spell SBS? Sweet Brown Sugar. That's right. It was weird with Memphis. You had your own Sweet Brown Sugar. You had your own Staggerly. I mean, they were both the yeah. same guy. Was it that word of those gimmicks had somehow spread to Memphis, or was it yes. that? Yes, because remember, Lawler was making shots in Florida in 81 and 82. That's what He was working a program with Funk in Memphis, but it, down in Florida, he went down and made some shots there. They had some talent trading going on back and forth, and when Lawler saw that, he's like, okay, Coco can be our sweet brown sugar. And the Stagger Lee thing got over like a million dollars. Okay, Coco can be Stagger Lee. It, you know, it just, because nobody in the Memphis Territory knew any of that was going on. And then also over to Carolinas about that time, Rocky Johnson was Sweet Ebony Diamond. That's and even right. he, he was a big star in the business, but he had never worked the Carolinas. So they made him kind of like the Sweet Brown Sugar, you know, fucking take off for that territory, but the people didn't get the other territories TVs. So they didn't have any frame of reference. Like, Oh, they stole this. It was new to them. What app we name wrestler admits to having served time in prison. The convict. That is correct. Plowboy Frazier in Los Angeles in the world's ugliest striped outfit. 19, what? 67, 68. What is the weight limit for an NWA junior heavyweight wrestler? 220 pounds. This says 230. You know what? It was at one point. And actually, did did they change it after Hodge? Did they change it from 220 to 230 because they were having trouble getting anybody? And it still ended up with Denny Brown. <laughs> the junior heavyweight with a beer gut. Yeah. <laughs> But he was only 5'7", so you know, but they couldn't find anybody under 220 pounds. I guess the question that coming out of that is, if Pee Wee Anderson drove Dusty Rhodes around, do you think they would have put the belt on him? No, and I have a feeling Pee Wee wouldn't have wanted it either. I think he just wanted the referee in and the beer money. What must the disadvantaged wrestler do prior to being allowed to participate in an NWA handicap match? <laughs> Uh, nothing, because it's a handicap match doesn't involve anyone being really handicapped. They have to sign a waiver of indemnity. (laughs) Okay. And let's get one final question here. 
Jim, who held the NWA World Heavyweight title in 1942, 1943, and 1947? Bill Longson. That is right. While Bill Longson, and in this case, they can call it the NWA because it was the National Wrestling Association. Association, right before the alliance, yes. And there it is, Gordon Soley trivia. We've gone a long time today, Jim. One quick song and we're out of here. One quick song and we're out of here. And bless you. Jim, this one was sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com from Donnie. Let's go to this. Take one. Let's get it. You know, there was a time on Saturdays and Sundays at night I'd sit with the whole family and... We'd watch wrestling. Them days are long gone. Damn shame. Where are all my wrestling stars? How <laughs> love mud shows in these crackhead bars. <laughs> Light a joint and whack the thunder toy. Big black bears can kill <laughs> Running fast now Where's my car? Time to drive back home Tony Khan has me busy fitted Black bears can climb up trees Just what the fuck now am I saying? No time for spot monkeys. Please bring back wrestling from the 80s. We waited far too long. Just like the song, my wrestling's gone. All right, y'all have a good night now. I love the show. <laughs> well, right, there it is. Hold on, just for that close alone. <laughs> <laughs> Short, sweet, to the point. Okay, thank you. Get back to your business now. I don't know if that was the uh, <laughs> melodic, mellifluous tones of like an Einar on the, but it was very, uh, but it was easy to digest. And just what I was thinking, I have no idea how he's tying all this together and what he's saying. He goes, I don't know what I'm saying. He says it in the song. <laughs> but with that, the drive through is closed, and now we have multiple thumb pianos. Let me put these down. Let's see how this sounds. Let me try to pick them up and see how it sounds. How about this? Fuck you. All right. Well, the drive-thru is over. We'll be back with you next week. Of course, with a big review of AEW. Yeah, that's what they're called. AEW Double or Nothing. And we'll be with you on the experience this weekend, wherever you find your favorite podcast. Subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. It'll be the very first thing that pops up. Clips of the episodes, full episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Patreon.com slash Cornette. For $5 a month, you get access to the archive going back to the beginning in 2013 of the drive through Any Experience. Patreon.com slash Cornette. You can follow Jim on Twitter at TheJimCornette. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Don't forget about Cornette's Collectibles at jimcornette.com. 
What should they not forget about, Jim? They shouldn't forget about the t-shirts and the books and the graphic novels and the variety of things along with the action figures and raising money for charity. All at the same place, jimcornette.com, your one-stop shop to do good things. That's right. Don't forget the drive through is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. But until next week on The Experience and this weekend on The drive through uh, I fucked that up. Until next weekend on The drive through Next week, not the weekend. Next week on The drive through there's two shows that are coming at you. He's Jim, I'm Ryan. <laughs> well, it's Jim Cornette's drive through Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive through Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting, I'm big fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dark order bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. mighty cult of cornets, and to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow-up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines, with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos, and she's their champion, she's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven Pedro, everybody. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.